the curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find Welcome to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I am Troy Gwynn. And this is episode number 63 of the Nashy Cast, where we once again, here in 2020, are attempting to have 2020 vision. <laughs> I thought she was going to say 2020 shows. <laughs> now, <laughs> Thank you for not saying that. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I, I, just can't, I can't get away from the cliche. Everybody's doing <laughs> Yeah, of the, course. The I know 2020. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yes. no. We don't, we don't do cliches on this show. I think we can all agree at this point it being, you know... March and all, that 2020 is turning out to be a bit of a shit year. <laughs> yeah, uh, to say the a, least. There's all kinds of complications <laughs> and weird things, but we are soldiering on podcasting because, mm. damn it, people need to hear what I have to, what we have to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, yeah, Troy, you, you Troy, notice you see, yeah, so, well, I occasionally say yeah. something. Troy's here, too. Troy's here too. Mm. It's not just me, <laughs> but <laughs> I can't get away from the cliche of 2020 vision, and I also can't get away from the fact that we are soldiering on with the idea that we are going to be bringing new voices onto the show mm-hmm. throughout the year. And this episode, being a follow-up to our four-and-a-half-hour <laughs> start to this particular year's mm-hmm. idea of bringing new voices onto the show, this time, it's not going to be that long a show, mm-hmm. folks. I mean, it'll mm-hmm. be longer than you mm-hmm. might be comfortable with, but it won't be four-and-a-half hours. Mm-hmm. This time out, we've only got two people, two brand-new guests to the Nashy cast, and I am proud of both of them. Uh, one of them I've had on the Bloody Pit, but the other... Uh, is a brand new podcasting partner for me, and I hope that in the future I get to podcast a good deal more with her because, man, I got to say, talking to this lady fired my imagination and made me remember exactly what it's like to have somebody new and fresh that I can bounce ideas off of and who honestly comes with so much instinctual knowledge, so much depth in fields of film that I really don't have any knowledge of. It's amazing to, to have someone sitting across from you who you don't already kind of know their feelings on a lot of things and to, and to kind of get those new tones and textures. It's amazing. What he's, he's being very nice, and what he's really saying is, you know, it's like is that, I know is, you is well. that I'm getting yes, is that I'm getting stale. Is like a stale part, stale podcasting partner. No, I, <laughs> we're past stale. We're in the molding. We are. We are. I've described, so. <laughs> described you. I've described you on another recent podcast as a barnacle on the ass of podcasting. Troy. Yes, I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> but no, 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 no. It's always good to have new people in the pot, and actually mm. here very soon. Um, here in the next couple of months, I think we have a tentative plan for both Troy and I, uh, instead of just me, to be actually interacting with someone new on this particular podcast. And uh, we'll let you know that as soon as we get it shored up. But uh, tonight, 
I don't even know what he's talking about, folks. So I'm just I'm letting him roll with it. <laughs> I know. The, Apparently, yes. The more Troy knows about things, the more I'm he lucky can that fuck I know. Yes, I'm lucky I know what date to actually show up. <laughs> show up for the podcast. So. Troy is lucky I let him out from underneath the stairs. He's, <laughs> he's got to. He's got to keep his shit in line. I can't right. put up with this crap. But all of us are suffering under the. Uh, well, most of us are probably locked down at yeah. this point. Locked down. Yes. And uh, that's difficult for all of us. And we hope that uh, we bring a little bit of uh, I don't know movie loving joy mm. to your your life and mm-hmm. hopefully this will be part of something that keeps you from going stir crazy or at least distracts you from being stir crazy i know mm-hmm. that you remember people troy has two bands mm-hmm. so uh this <laughs> this this being a guy you being a guy that just gigs constantly this is sure. definitely it's shut just, that down it is interesting yes i have nothing on the i have nothing on the plate for i mean uh, you know obviously i have things scheduled in months down the road but who knows how much of it will happen i certainly lost just about all the gigs uh, uh, for most of March, I you know I had a couple that did come through, but for the most part, all the gigs in March and April have been wiped away, uh, waiting to hear on on May. But uh, it is strange; it is 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 a different uh, thing for me to actually have all this free time, and <laughs> I'm actually uh, making sure that I play a little music every day because uh, I don't know about other musicians out there, but my skills, what is such as they are, definitely begin to. Uh, it rust pretty quickly if I don't, you know, if they're not yeah. in continual uh, usage. And I'm also uh, uh, trying to uh, use it as a chance to, you know, maybe actually write some songs because uh, I've got fragments and bits and all sorts of songs I want to write. And usually I'm too busy practicing with bands, playing gigs with bands and working on specific things for those bands that I get very little time to actually write songs. And so I'm trying to put that now, put this time into doing more of that just to keep something going there and uh my band the exotic ones have pretty much finished recording our next ep so that's something you know it's being mastered right now it's been mixed now it's being mastered hopefully we can continue to you know even as you know even with everything else being shut down hopefully we can continue to get that uh, the rest of the manufacturing of that maybe get that out uh uh street that in the next couple of months uh, so be watching for the next exotic ones ep cool um but uh yeah just trying to keep as busy as possible but i want to say real quick Congratulations to you, uh, you, Rod Wait. Barnett, for your 100th episode oh. of your other podcast, oh. The uh, Bloody Pit. Uh, yeah, so well, I did want to bring that up. That. Yeah. There, you are, of course, a huge part of that. You are the most frequent frequent mm-hmm. guest mm-hmm. on, uh, on that show. been proud to have been that, proud to have done that. And we've, been, done, uh, we've done uh, mm-hmm. several runs of uh, episodes. I forced you to uh, sit with Jeff and I talking about you're the hunter from the future very early on. <laughs> the four hour version. <laughs> the, the, this, the, the full length yeah, version of right. you're the hunter from the future because we are not going to skimp. No, we're not. Uh, also, uh, the long list of Godzilla movies that we've yeah, covered yeah. and um, various and sundry things here and there. Yeah. Now we're doing the Universal Horror mm-hmm. Films of the 40s. Mm-hmm. So, yep. yeah, you, uh, you're the most frequent guest. We've even covered a couple of Fulci films. And, we did. Uh, we covered an Argento film. We covered opera. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man, you are definitely uh, the second most mm-hmm. uh, heard voice on that mm-hmm. particular show, as well as mm-hmm. probably being at least 50 to 49% of this one. Mm-hmm. Who the hell knows? I mean, somebody get out the measuring stick because God knows I will blather on. No, no, it's great, man. It's It's been someone recently described us as you're the play by play and I'm the color commentator. And I thought that actually, maybe that actually fits. You know, I, I told him, I, my response maybe. was that I'm okay with being the. Dandy Don Meredith to Rod's uh, Howard Cosell there. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do feel as we get older that our references. Yeah, I know people out there, huh? Who, what? Yeah, what? yeah, yeah. You have to be our age to get these. Uh, on the 100th episode, 
when uh, with with John Hudson, we actually made a reference to uh, the Squire of Gothos. Wow, my gosh! Wow. Well, well here, here's here's why uh, he mentioned Under the Dome and be, uh, the the Stephen King novel Under mm-hmm. the Dome. Mm-hmm. And uh, being disappointed with the ending, and me going, and I basically said, "But yeah, how else could that novel have ended?" And he goes, "Yeah," I said, "Yeah, I guess so." And I said, "Well, you know, I mean, it was going to have to be the Squire of Gothos, no matter what happened." <laughs> and it's like, because yeah, that's what it is. I mean, yeah. that's, that's yeah. the ending that Under the Dome has is uh, freaking episode eighteen, mm-hmm. first season, Star Trek, nineteen sixty six. I'm sorry, I know all this shit, and no one should, but I do. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> what, what what can you say? As we get older, our references get more and more out of date. Mm-hmm. I try to inject the occasional more up to date thing, mm-hmm. uh, but I despise Pokemon, so I skip that whole era. Yeah, I, I can't I can't figure it mm-hmm. out, and I don't want to know. Mm-hmm. So right. I I don't know. <laughs> I'm just I, I'm good with cat memes. I'm good with that. I can do that. Yeah. But other than that, I don't have a clue. So folks, if we say something and you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I would suggest Googling it, but we aren't worth the time. No, really not. You'll you'll be like, wow, that I really wasted my time doing that. I want that five minutes of my life back. So, yes, don't even go there. Don't even Squire try. of Gothos might not be a bad thing to Google. Uh, no, no, no. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's worth the time, I it think. It is. But most of what we talk about, Dandy Don Meredith, you don't know who that, you no, don't even know who you that is. To, yeah. You don't need to know. It, it, won't, it, will not, it will not help you. No, not at all. <sighs> well, but they could be entertained by Howard Cosell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Howard Cosell was, uh, yeah, that was, that was. He was a character. Yes, to say the least. (laughs) Oh, God. At any rate, folks, tonight, like I said, we're going to, uh, well, I think what we'll do is we'll just get right into it. What it is, our first guest this evening, I was very, very impressed when uh, I got a yes to my request for an interview on this. Uh, The great Kat Ellinger. A lady who I have been in awe of for quite some time. She's someone who I've been impressed by. Her commentary output, her writing on film, both on the BFI website and mm-hmm. another, and quite a few other places around the web. She, uh, uh, along with a uh, along with uh, a writing partner, has been involved in uh, a podcast called Daughters of Darkness. And I think you would be well served to check that podcast out whenever they get an episode out. I think that's part of their part of the fun with that one is mm. you never can tell. And she is well. First of all, she's an incredibly sweet woman. She's incredibly knowledgeable. She's mm. pretty damn funny, as I'm sure you will hear in this. And uh, man, it's just a blast to have someone like her on. And uh, I got to say, this is a fun interview. So I tell you what, we'll do. We'll take a quick break. Play a couple of promos for some other shows, mm-hmm. and then we'll just go right into Kat's interview. Then uh, we'll come back and let Troy, who was nowhere around it when I when I had not this, invited, yeah, <laughs> I, Troy was not invited, is not invited. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I won't let Troy anywhere near any of the female guests <laughs> that we have in the future because he's a dangerous man. Even over wow. Skype, even over <laughs> Skype, his sheer masculinity. Is toxic. And my Nashy Musk gets going, man. It's no, true. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we'll, Kat has a few things to say about the, the Nashy, Nashy masculinity. Yeah, she does. Oh, yeah, she, does. she does. So hang on a minute, a couple promos, and then we'll go right into Kat's interview. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked. 
prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie to jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of her. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? Rod once again, and I'm very happy to bring a new guest to the show, someone who, uh, I'll be honest, until recently, I didn't even think that it would be a good idea to try to get on the podcast. I've been in awe of her work for so long, and uh, as someone who I've enjoyed reading, I love her commentary work, I'm just thoroughly impressed with her, but I was thrilled when she said yes to my tentative request, will you please come join me in the Nashy Cast Clubhouse? Uh, this is Kat Ellinger. Kat, how are you doing? Oh my God, I'm really embarrassed now you said all that. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are many nice things that I could and shall say about you, but we'll try to restrict them so as to keep you from blushing too much. I'm British. We don't do that sort of thing, you know. we <laughs> <laughs> Thank okay. You, I've wanted to come on for ages because I, I love this podcast. Well, I'm going to admit to something right now. Um, well, first of all, I should tell everyone that you and I've been talking for over an hour, and we finally decided to record. So that's 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 on me. Sorry, but uh, what uh, what I really do need to confess to you is that um, to be clear, I'm a little embarrassed by this. Uh, you're our first female guest. I feel honored then. I feel honoured. I've been let into the club. <laughs> Should have let you into the club a long time ago. And as a matter of fact, uh, we're, we're spending this year, this will be the second episode I do where I'm interviewing people to talk about Nashy films that uh, have never been on the show before. And also, uh, I'm hoping to get, uh, as, as one wag put it in a comic strip long ago, a wider variety of gender spectrum on the show. <laughs> Mass goes woke. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, well, as we were talking about earlier, um, 
there have been times when uh, we've been recording uh, even commentary tracks, and I've been a little concerned that we were coming off as as creepers staring at the naked women on screen. But that's just a natural part of these exploitation films in the first place. So I, I don't feel too bad, but I do know that the, that lust in audio form is probably kind of off-putting to some people. I don't know. See, a lot of people think that or assume that women, especially feminist women, don't actually get anything out of these films. But there's a reason why a lot of feminist women are drawn to Eurocult. And, you know, we like to see sex, too, for fuck's sake. And Paul Nashie, if you ever wanted to objectify an icon on screen... Poor fucking Nashi, for Christ's sake. I mean, he objectified himself. He was always walking yeah, up oh, yeah. naked with his... So, come on, we like to do that, too. I think as long as it's done respectfully and with a good heart, then there's nothing There's nothing wrong in that. And these films are made to celebrate that. They come out of Spain, one of the most oppressed, sexually repressed com- countries at the time, under Francoism huging on Catholicism, you know, so they're so transgressive when you think about the context. Jess Franco as well. They were like a massive, am I okay to swear? Oh, of course. You can, you can, you can <laughs> fucking square all you like. Cool. Well, they were like the biggest fuck you to, to Franco. I know Nashi wasn't necessarily political, but just, they just fight back against all that traditional shit. And I just think they're wonderful because of that. And, yeah, we should celebrate that. I don't think that makes you a creeper, that you enjoy sex that's put there to be enjoyed. Yeah, I just don't want it to ever seem like that you can actually hear us, you know, masturbating while we're, <laughs> we're watching well, these well, That'd things. be going a bit too far, but... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, one of the questions that, one of the questions that crops up well we should tell people that the the movie you chose to talk about was Dr. Jekyll and the Werewolf oh. or Dr. Jekyll and the Wolfman from 1972 I did because it has all that transgressive sexuality it's just a fucking riot it was hard well, that to is choose in though when you were like we choose one and I was like oh god just one <laughs> <laughs> well in the future we can talk about more don't worry so this isn't like I don't really like to play favourites, but this is this is kind of at the top of the queue for me, just because I don't know because it's got all this weird shit in it. But they've all got weird shit in them though, so you know weirder shit. Well, it definitely is the first time this combination of of classic style monsters are put together in a single film, which is brilliant and so nashy. Yes, exactly. You were talking early. We were talking earlier about the the kind of transgressive nature of things. You mentioned that, and of course, what my mind immediately leaps to is something that was trimmed out of the British prints of this movie, uh, and left in the American prints, which is the the nude whipping scene, yes. which um, is is without a doubt uh, something that um, is a bit over the line, no matter how you look at it. But it is the, the it, I think it's the transgressive nature of that that is being used to get across just how nasty the Hyde character or persona actually is. And, and for that, it, it, it's, it's, you're having to go that far to, dis, to draw a distinct line between the, the werewolf character and the Hyde character because one doesn't want to be a monster and is trying desperately not to be, and the other is just reveling in it. Well, this is the thing, right? <clears throat> the strange case of, of Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde is one of my favorite gothic novellas, but it's always been one in the earlier years that there was a problem 
translating it to screen like hammer tried it you have those classic adaptations but the fact that you have this character who basically just enjoys reveling in the taboo he's really sadistic i mean a lot of it is left between the lines in the original text because of obviously when it's written but you know, there's so much scope there to have someone truly evil and really just loving being evil. And it's always been that thing that when it's adapted to screen classically, they always struggled with those elements. Like, how do they translate them to screen? Like, it's interesting you said about it being cut here in Britain. So I'm talking about Spain being sexually repressed. I mean, fucking hell. <laughs> if you look at our classic horror, it's all about sexual repression. Like, Hammer's all about that whole thing. And we're not even Catholics. We can't even blame it on that. We're, we're so heathen here. <laughs> So it's it's not even that. We just have this very kind of oh, stiff upper lip thing going on. And obviously we had a lot of problems with the BBFC. Oh, in the early you 80s, know, yeah. Into, uh, you know, wow. <laughs> Forever, basically. I'm trying to well, think. Well, you know, the, the video nasty know, thing is the biggest, the biggest <laughs> thing. I mean, they still do. I, I'm so shocked to learn every now and then that they're still trimming seconds out of movies today. Oh, totally. Things like New York Ripper will never get released uncut here. It's, it, I mean, it's just, oh, it's one of those things. Only here could we have someone like Mary Whitehouse rise yeah. to prominence. So, you know, you look at Dr. Jekyll and it's such a rich gothic text and it explores all the wonderful things that gothic like to explore sexuality the taboo um, you know society the hypocrisy in society all those things it's such a rich text but on screen there's always that issue with interpreting it and the first one that comes along that I think brings out those elements is this film, even though it's not really anything to do with Robert Louis Stevenson. It just takes that character out. And then after that, you get Barofchek's version of it, which is possibly the most transgressive. And mm-hmm. it's just, oh. So I see that as, as this is a, you know, moving things forward to look at Robert Louis Stevenson in the way that we should be able to look at it. Because, you know, you've got fucking Dr. Hyde, uh, Dr. Hyde, you've got fucking Mr. Hyde strolling around Soho. And <laughs> it's like, that's just one, one of the things that I absolutely love about this film is, you know, I don't think those scenes do go too far. And I'm sad that people felt they needed to be cut out because you have to have that. If you're going to have someone who celebrates this kind of thing, I want to see that. I'm sorry, but I want to see it. And I know it's like, it's Paul Nashy and we kind of like to be on his side and that's normally how he plays it. Valdemar's the sympathetic character. Right. Uh, so it's often difficult when we see him not being very nice, but I kind of like that. I one of my favourite Nashi films is Al Caminante. And come on, that's like sleazy as fuck and he is an asshole in that film. <laughs> Well, of course he he plays. I mean, he's the de- he's the devil on earth, and and the joy of that movie is watching him be this yeah. scumbag and draw all these evil elements out of the other characters around him. It's and it's there's a lot of that in this as well because once again, you know, Nashi you know writes the best role for himself as he always did, so he gets to play. 
almost three characters in this one, depending on how you want to look at it, but at least two. Okay, so he's he's the he's the good guy cursed hero who you're you're rooting for to to actually find a way out of this fucking lycanthropy predicament. And at the same time, he becomes Hyde and he's just this sadistic bastard, you know, raping and murdering anything that he can get his hands on. And uh, rewatching this movie, I'd forgotten one. Else. Well, first of all, I got to tell you this. <laughs> my, my dear girlfriend, who has for a very for more years than she needs to actually been happy to watch Paul Nashi films, because uh, as you stated earlier, she she finds especially 70s Nashi to be rather dashing. <laughs> and Come on, he was he was. The well, he was. People talk about Christopher Lee and that, but Paul Nashie, come on. He was a good-looking guy. There's no way around it. But what she keeps pointing out to me, and she really pointed it out when we were watching this film the other night, she, she understands why when he is the ravening, you know, you know, bellowing werewolf, she gets the reason why that, that creature is drooling. But she's going, why in the fuck is Mr. Hyde drooling when he's strangling the <laughs> prostitute? She said, did he just like to drool? Is that just something that he liked to do? <laughs> Quite clearly. Um, you know, because he's, he's bursting with... Whatever. With fluids? <laughs> I mean, <sighs> I just think it is just so... And, and he's like, he's like, you know, I love the part. I know we're jumping ahead. When he's going along propositioning prostitutes and he's doing mm-hmm. chat and she's kind of like, you know, he's wearing a fucking top hat and this weird costume and this woman doesn't bat an eyelid. And this is Soho in Britain. Like, well, I would have to say, having having seen more than a few movies that take place at that time and in and, and around that area. Uh, it was it, it was it was more than likely that you were going to see some some group of of slightly well well to do people dressing in foppish dandyish clothing I just, just because no. he looks huh? like the babadook he's like <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he know oh my god i've never thought of that before <laughs> and she just totally doesn't bat an eyelid and then goes off with him and then i love this so you've got the you've got valdemar You've got the werewolf and you've got Mr. Hyde. But then he also then becomes Jack the Ripper at some point. And it turns into a bit of Hitchcock's frenzy where he's doing the stranging. You're like, you know, about layering it on. Seeing Soho as it was because Soho is just not Soho anymore. And it's totally gone. And as a teen in the 80s to often venture into Soho and it was like the forbidden paradise you know and it was hmm. wasn't as it was in the 70s by the 80s but it was still you still had the sex shows you still had people openly selling drugs on the street or bongs and prostitutes so as a teenager that just seemed like you know so exciting and if you walk around Soho today you wouldn't recognize it was the same with parts of new york so seeing it in the film as it was is just with the whole sleazy thing going on i i love that i absolutely love that aspect of it 
this getting the uh, idea of the setting being a good place for a modern, you know, Mr. Hyde is wonderful. And I kind of, you know, when you, when you start thinking in depth a little bit about what could have been in this movie and isn't, I mean, not that it needs more elements, God knows, but (laughs) more elements, but the idea of having uh, the Jekyll and Hyde story play out in early 1970s uh, London, especially around uh, the Soho area, where it would be so easy for this character to, much as in the original story, kind of blend in with those those sleazier elements that were just part of society at the time. That's a fascinating idea, and I think that it's I think that's been played with in certain in certain in certain films, but I can't remember if it's ever been overtly a Jekyll and Hyde adaptation. No, and he, and he's like a, it's great that you bring this up because he's like a libertine basically. He's like this yeah. libertine character which I love. And the whole old versus new thing, because I love how Nashi often uses this. I know a lot of Euro cults started to modernise Gothic just because period set films were too expensive. But right. out of that, you get these wonderful stories, and this is one of them. Because he totally fits into that that whole world. But I love how he keeps the old versus new, and he does it in... La Marca del Hombre Lobo. One of my favourite scenes is that one that Sam Sherman cut out, the ball scene at the beginning with the masks. You think you're in a Hammer film to start with. You think this is just this typical period set, classic horror. And then the next minute you've got like late 60s fashions and sports cars. And he brings those two worlds together. And he does that here with the whole... The, the European village and the superstition and all that. So he has those two worlds side by side. And I really love that aspect of his films. Well, this one is is very stark in that old world versus modern world kind of idea because the movie is almost hinged in a very strange way because outside of the, um, uh, the little prelude scene that begins the movie that takes place ostensibly in the city but really just in the the home of uh, a particular character and his and his new wife the movie really is kind of split in half uh rural old world you know rural slash old world where we meet the quote-unquote witch who is of course not really a witch and the werewolf character you know who lives in the black castle and the you know the whole nine yards you have the rural you 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 have the freaking villagers you know <laughs> with pitchforks and and, I and know torches that's great it's like it's like two entirely separate films in a way with four different nashi characters if you can it's it's yeah <laughs> it's, it's it's a it's a real bargain in that respect <laughs> And the whole kind of, you know, you got that guy, that deformed guy in it. And it's so, like, goes back to those Hammer films where the villagers are assembling in the inn and it's got all that going on. And then the next minute you're with Jack Taylor in some clinic and you've got Soho and it's so all over the place. And I'm sure that would bother some people, but this is the sort of thing I like to see in a gothic film. Oh, I love to I love to have elements like this combined uh, or, or even if they're not combined well, just having them rub up against each other because it automatically makes me wonder why we're having these two elements put together in whatever reason for whatever reason. And is there some reason that I'm not paying attention to? And of course, you know, the movie throws enough violence, nudity and sleaze at you to entertain you no matter what you're looking for. 
unless you're looking for something that doesn't have those elements in that case i'm, I'm sorry perhaps move on to the next movie don't but, this. <laughs> say what i said don't pick this one if it if that bothers you because it True. is yeah well, as far as like quote-unquote tradition because i know you have a lot of classic horror films you just like the traditional aspects the way that he kind of puts a finger up to that and just goes all over the place i love it it's like really imaginative well, I think it's fascinating that he he doesn't. He, it's almost as if he feel he felt like the story didn't have enough villainry. So my memory, okay, I don't know if this is true of you, but it had been a few years since I'd rewatched this movie, and so rewatching it the other night, I described at one point out loud to my girlfriend. I said, I said, uh, well, what's terrible is that the uh, Doctor Jekyll character that that uh, Jack Taylor is playing. He has nothing but good intentions in this whole thing, and he's you know it gets turned on its head because of the uh, of of his nurse who is a spurned lover as well. And then we're watching the movie, and you have that scene where she describes to him. She says, "I've done criminal things for you." Oh, and there's just <laughs> she's great. She is. Yeah, and so Myrta Miller's character is explaining, "Hey, you need to pay attention because." I've done criminal things for you. All those people that we've indiscriminately killed in your experiments. And I'm just like, oh, holy shit. I didn't remember that at all. She is. Well, she because I hadn't watched it for a while as well. I'm watching it back. She really stood out for me. I didn't remember her being so sinister. And so and it's just like adding in this extra thing. She's kind of like a peripheral character. But she's also like really evil. And it's just like why is she like this we don't really know this whole backstory and then you've got jack taylor who is like fucking jack taylor could stand the most absurd <laughs> situation always with that stoic look on his face <laughs> with utter conviction yes. that you know this all totally makes sense i love it like anything that was another reason i picked it because jack taylor i love jack taylor and the, he's amazing the, i wish he'd made more films with nashing oh he's so good in this as dr jackal he's just i love him i love him i, I love him in uh the mummy's revenge so much because he and uh, he, he he and the uh his wife uh we've always thought of since we first covered the movie back in the first year we were doing this podcast we just immediately identified them as the nick and nora charles of mummy movies oh my god yes <laughs> They are. They're amazing. <laughs> He's so good. I mean, Jack Taylor always brings his A game. So seeing him as Dr. Jackal is just just absolutely brilliant. And in his mad scheme to quash the werewolf bite. <laughs> like, what were you thinking? And it's the full moon. So they have Valdemar traveling on the full moon. Is about to check. And getting trapped oh, in an elevator. I've done this a couple of days ago, perhaps. <laughs> I had it set up just so he can change and start killing people. I mean, it's great. It's almost like a hospital slasher as well in that regard. It's it's just throws so many different things into it. And then Dr. Draco and Mr. Hyde is like one of the i mean gothic fiction is all about dualism and that's obviously something that nashi was obsessed with yeah you know why else would he have chosen the werewolf and it but jekyll is one of the novels that is the gothic text on dualism this whole thing of man fighting his primal urges and and you know the side where 
man's repressed by having to fit in to a society and be polite and he wants to escape that i mean it's absolutely great in that regard in the themes of gothic dualism and so bringing those two things together with the wolfman which isn't really a gothic literature thing but it has those same themes i think it's perfect it's like synergy it's odd and it's very absurd but it's also a really good synergy of those two things and then you get this all this stuff in there the cursed man wanting to escape and then this pimpy babadoo picking up prostitutes (laughs) (laughs) jack Taylor looking concerned, like, what have I done? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the, the the Jack Taylor concerned look where he he's essentially kind of, there could be a super cut from a, a hundred films of that exact expression where he cuts his eyes to one side, either the left or right, yeah. um, out of concern because of information he's just heard. And it's like, I want I want like a 10 minute super cut of nothing but that on a loop forever. Oh it's, my God. Yes. But, but <laughs> Oh man, we're weird. Anyway, <laughs> I would totally support that. I'm no good at video editing. Someone, Oh me either. The video of all it said one had existed, but it's been taken away of Peter Cushing slapping people. I, t- I totally <laughs> add that Taylor looking concerned to that. Is that, a <laughs> that would be amazing. A whole series of like these weird quirks that actors do. But Jack yeah. would be up there. He, he's just the best. He, he really is. He's kind of... His character doesn't have an awful lot to do in this, admittedly. It seems Although he lives a lot longer than anybody expects. Or, yes, but he... I don't know, just his whole presence, just the fact that he's there, kind of doing his look doing it being concerned his mad experiments is you know yeah absolutely brilliant well um one of the the elements that creeps repeatedly into nashi's screenplays is something that uh i used to to find kind of amusing and then i found a little troubling and now i'm just kind of impressed that it is something that is a reoccurring theme not just in nashi but in a lot of horror films and films that are not necessarily horror films, which is that to demonstrate that our character is a hero, he saves a woman from being raped. Yes. Um, (laughs) This crops up so many times uh, again and again in horror movies and especially in Nashi films, which is where I first took note of it because I was really boring down into this stuff. It's, it really is cinematic shorthand for I'm the good guy because I'll kill literally murder with a rock, someone who is about to defile this poor, beautiful woman. I'd never thought about it that way, but it's true. And the whole way the the rape attack scene is set up is so random as well. And you're right, it's just there to have Paul Nashi come out in his nice sweater and be the saviour and carry her away into the... Right, right. Well, it, the, the scene serves... Actually, three purposes. It introduces a, a bad guy and gives the, this particular bad guy who's, who goes throughout the movie uh, a motivation to kill off screen, strangely enough, a character that no one should be wanting to kill. It sets up uh, our, our character of, of Daninsky as a, a hero because he's certainly not a rapist, <laughs> for whatever else you may say. And it also gets rid of the husband of the gorgeous woman who needs to fall in love with the Ninsky to wrap this whole goddamn thing up. 
I know, but wouldn't you fall in love with Paul Nashi? I mean, I'm probably asking the wrong person here. <laughs> I'm actually more in line with falling in love with, with Shirley Corrigan, but okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the husband gets murdered, and that's fine, because like, if it was anyone else, she perhaps wouldn't understand it. I think that's what I'm saying, because she doesn't seem that bothered. <laughs> Well, initially she's initially she's a little concerned because she she's trying to get the hell out of that castle. And okay, what I love is that once again it had been a few years since I watched this movie, and I always forget this one this particular moment. So he rescues the poor woman who's about to be assaulted, carries her. She's unconscious when he rescues her, carries her back to his castle. We're already in fairy tale land here, and then the next time we see her, she is asleep on the bed but she's in a black nightgown. Immediately, my dear girlfriend says to me, so wait a minute, did he undress her and put her in that? <laughs> and I said... He's and I, just hanging around just for that. I, re- I, I, remembered, I remembered, though, I remembered to tell her, actually, no, you've not seen the character who probably more than likely did that. He has this, this older woman who raised him, who's there in the castle as well. So in my mind, it was her that did this. And she just gives me this look like, yeah, do you really think that he wasn't in the room? <laughs> <laughs> it is cool, though. The, the older lady. I forgot about the older lady. So, so many people in this. So many different little characters. But she's like his little keeper, sort of housekeeper, surrogate mummy thing yeah. who watches over the woman. And she's lovely as well. She's the, ex- she's the what... exposition dropper so that we get the full sympathetic backstory. Yeah. And he's nice. And, you know, he just needs this old lady to look after him. And he saves women. And he's absolutely lovely, apart from when he's Mr. Hyde. And he's described as, as being ill. We don't tell her that he's a freaking monster. We tell her yeah. that she's that he's ill. But again, it's like that whole hammer thing, isn't it? it? Reminds me of something like, oh my god, what's the name of it? Not Brides of Dracula. What's the one with the vampire who lives in the castle with the old lady? Oh, it's Brides of Dracula. Yeah, it is Brides of Dracula. Good grief. <laughs> been a long week yeah like that sort of scenario and living out in this weird castle and you've got that whole traditional gothic thing that comes into it then that a lot of euro cult films tend to drop i think he really relished that whole really classic traditional thing of the aristocracy and and all that wonderful stuff but he somehow manages to update it to a more contemporary period, which I love as well. It's, you're right, it's a total fairy tale. Like, Hammer, those Hammer films ex- seem to exist in this weird Europe from the 16th century or something, <laughs> where, you know, people live in these little cosy houses and they have huge castles and the inn and people with pitchforks. Um, but for some reason in this film, that's still occurring in the 70s. Well, not only that, it's. <laughs> well, the the whole the, the the trip by car at the beginning for for uh, Imre and his and his young wife uh, Justine you know they're they're venturing back to his homeland in hung, in uh, Hungary to uh, to visit his parents' grave and this stopover they make uh, overnight in this rustic inn that's right out of the freaking eighteen hundreds and you're 
you even have one of my favorite things. This whole segment plays just like something out of Dracula, for God's sake, where you have that stopover yeah. before you go on further to the Borgo Pass, and and you you have so this is the the place where you you know you stay for stay for a little while, get some food, and learn all of the horrible horrible legends that are going to to haunt you for the rest of this what the rest of your existence, and. You ha- so you have the the pipe smoking innkeeper informing you about the you know the the yes. black castle and don't go to that old cemetery and and all this stuff that is just so typical of these stories and like I say I, I always take it back to the the same thing whether you reference the book or whether you reference the 1931 film uh, you have this stopover where all this information is imparted and it feels like if you weren't if you hadn't just watched them drive up in a car. This could easily be the setting for something in 1860. Oh, totally. It's, it's so... I mean, he was good at doing this, mixing these two. We've already just discussed that, mixing those elements. The only thing that's missing is Michael Ripper. So if it, <laughs> if Michael Ripper, this is true. This is that, true. That would have just made it even more perfect. But I think he was exclusive to Hammer in that role. It's <laughs> well, that same scene that you expect, you know, you're expecting something that is set in the 1800s, like these very classic films. And I think Nashi's love for those and respect for those as well is wonderful. And his desire to, to, to fold those into so many different kinds of stories. It's possible to uh, see him even using those ideas, even when he's setting things in modern day. And yeah. that, that, that's a, that's a lovely thing too. And it's this, this movie though, being so much a film of two halves, almost as if thematically and structurally he's letting or trying to let the film mirror that split between Jekyll and Hyde and Daninsky and the werewolf. And it's, it may be reading a little bit too much into it, but then again, once you read Nashi's autobiography and learn a little bit more, a little bit more about him, this was a well-read man. This was someone who knew these literary tropes because he kind of absorbed them. I think just watching his films as someone who's a huge fan of Gothic, like I am, he knew this genre he you know wasn't just emulating things or like some of the films that were made were just more commercially focused so they'd have their certain formula he knew this genre inside out and the literature and the tradition and all of it and i think that's why he was able to play with it and take bits from here and there and think well this would actually work in a modern setting and we can include this it he was very cultured in that respect. And I think that's one of the other things that I really love about his work. He was somebody who was obsessed with Gothic as much as I am. And to see it be played with, because people often think of Gothic as like this old thing and it comes from Victorian times. And because of films like, and and this isn't a criticism because obviously I love these films, but because of Universal and Hammer, they should be set in a certain thing. And that is tradition. And that is Gothic. But Gothic at the time when it was written through the 1800s, mainly was written as a contemporary fiction. And it was written about things, changes in society of that at that time. And it was addressing things like sexual repression or taboo or, you know, the things that you shouldn't politely comment on, which is why it was so subversive at the time. But it was 
I think through film for a long time, not detached from that whole period it was actually written on until suddenly in Europe, I think because of budgetary constraints, people suddenly started to realise, hang on a minute, these stories actually work in a modern setting as well because we still have those same fears and anxieties and there are still things that are taboo and there are still universal themes in the alike like the dualism for example and we can we can use those but we can change the setting and when that happens you get that watershed moment as it goes into the 70s like all hell breaks loose and you get all these weird and wonderful gothic films mainly made in europe it's one of the things I love about Eurocult, and Nashi was such a big part of that. I think. Well, it always makes me this film in particular always makes me think when you start when you start talking about the dualism question, is that what he has set up here? Nashi playing with a certain uh, idea, two sides of the same dualism idea. In other words, uh, Daninsky is a character who has this dualistic nature forced upon him. This is a curse to him, whereas the classic. Jekyll Hyde's story is of a man who sought this out. He wished for this and worked to obtain it. And so the the movie is, whether it's overt in putting that idea forward, he's presenting two different people in the Nashi character and the uh, Jack Taylor character who got to this dualism problem at, from different points. One by accident as a curse, the other because they sought it out because of their intellectual curiosity and their desire to play in that realm. And so there, if you just examine it thematically from that, from that spot, there are so many stories that could spin out of that. This is just one of them. And this is one that of course is very much of its time of its genre and that folds itself perfectly into what was being produced at the time and how, how else could it be? But that idea is something that I think that I'm, I'm a little frustrated that there's been little to no examination of that in future filmmakers wanting to put that... Du- Usually they want to keep things so simple that it's just one character with a dualistic nature, not two. And this is something that I think that Nashi probably saw as a way to come at this story, but it not it's not a big element of it. It's just part of what he's doing. And I just think that there's so much meat on that bone that nobody's gone back to it is really kind of a sad statement about maybe people not seeing this as the way I'm seeing it, or maybe it's just so buried and not so obvious because I'm not necessarily sure that Nashi rigorously sat down and thought about that split beyond the obvious one, the monster one. I think he was instinctively drawn to those dualism themes, though, because it's something that he revisits time and time again, even outside of his werewolf films. People like, even like in his Jallo, The Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, you have a character who's tormented. And I think he just was really instinctively drawn to people that were tormented for whatever reason. And and that whole idea of man having, I mean, what that says about Paul Nashi, I don't know. But <laughs> having to, you know, wanting to escape, on one hand, wanting to escape that whole facade of, you know, with the Dr. Jekyll character, wanting a freedom from that and wanting to unleash that side. And then the other part of it, they're almost like two mirrors. 
uh, the other part is is wanting to suppress that side and it's really complex when you start to think about it and so in tune with the whole gothic thing the whole gothic tradition thing i think you do get a lot of classic horror people who tend to look down on the more european features and things like nashi because they're kind of like well these aren't traditional but there's all the tradition is in that film and yes he does things with it that are different but good that's what makes it good but there does tend to be this placing of things in boxes where these are on a lower thing these euro films especially the spanish ones get a really hard time and then these are up here like universal and hammer these are like you know very serious films and these are silly and i just i just that really annoys me it's Uh, it's 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 a it's a looking down the nose at these kind of films that i I think it started to go away in certain circles but it still does hang on a good bit yeah which is why i'm glad to see in recent years especially now we've had all the wonderful blu-rays and i know you've contributed to those and more people have actually been exposed to Nashi. you know just spanish horror just in general on home videos really neglected we're just starting to see it catch up now so mondo macabro are doing a load of good stuff we've had la raz coming out i never thought i'd see that happen oh i know uh, Nashi. never thought we'd see Nashi on blue and so more audiences are being exposed to this and i think that's wonderful because people are starting to think hang on a minute you know these films are actually quite fun they're really good they the stories are interesting so i'm starting to see slowly more people come into this and i think that's a wonderful thing because spanish horror in general has just been so neglected i think when you compare it to something like italian for example true very true and i think that luckily we <laughs> I, we, we didn't know ten years ago whether or not we were talking into the talking into the wind to, to no one. Uh, we used to joke that it was the we, we were doing the nichiest niche podcast in the history of time, and if anybody ever listened to it, we'd be shocked. But at the same time, uh, the the fact that we lasted long enough that it caught up with us, and that we're now seeing this resurgence of interest in Nashi is wonderful because that's what we that's what we hoped for. This stuff should be paid attention to and we're we're to the point now where luckily we're even getting other uh what one would say perhaps even more marginal uh spanish horror stuff stuff from the golden age of spanish horror actually getting release in the united states on blu-ray high def and it's really kind of a shock to see it happen but my god thank goodness i mean when you have when, when i can actually point someone to the corruption of chris miller and you can go buy the damn thing I am I never, thrilled. I never saw that one coming, and it's like, good grief! That just the wealth of stuff that's that's being restored now. I think we're about to enter a new golden age of Spanish horror, perhaps, where new audiences, because even like hardcore, a lot of hardcore Italian horror fans tend to veer away from the Spanish stuff, outside of perhaps the more obvious ones like the Tombs of the Blind Dead and Nashi. They they don't tend to go there and i'm not quite sure why that or maybe just because they're just so obscure or i don't know i think part of it may well here's the thing i don't understand it to a degree because when i started to get into this stuff heavily in the old gray market tape trading days of the 90s uh i never really differentiated between what you know films from spain films from italy films from germany 
I was just kind of, you know, I was a vacuum hose trying to suck it all up as quickly as I could because, and it was, to me, it was just Euro horror or Euro cult or Euro trash or whatever the hell you called it. I just wanted to see all of the shit. I didn't care what country it came from. It didn't matter to me. Yeah, totally same. Well, it's like the the Jallo thing, isn't it? You have some people who are like, you can't have a Spanish Jallo. Well, yes, you can. Yes, <laughs> precisely. I mean, come on. It's weird, weird. And you think if you're in that niche area anyway, and you're in that identifying yourself as that weird, um, you know, just embrace all of it. But you do get people who are like really purists, and it's like, well, for a start, a lot of the first actual quote unquote Jallos were Spanish. Italian co-production so yeah. yeah technically they're Spanish jallows <laughs> well it's not only that it's 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 when you get down to this weird hair splitting and you point out that you know Brian De Palma's dressed to kill as a fucking giallo see I totally agree I think you have an American giallo I did a thing on the eyes of Laura Mars not to go off on a mad tangent but I talked about that as a giallo and you know you do get this weird kind of thing and Spanish horror as a result is is missed out a little bit but um i think people are slowly coming round to its charms i think you know they have lower budgets in italy for a start and they didn't have as big an industry and they were working in really difficult conditions because they were still under fascism for the first part of the golden age and in spain culturally you know the fantastic film or horror film just wasn't really culturally accepted it was very frowned upon so you know they were fighting against difficult conditions and they didn't really have the budgets but i think spanish horror film is earthier than italian horror film and it has more folklore tends to have more folklore in it or weird elements and they do tend to go more on out there with layering weirdness on which i personally really really like in a euro cult film but when you look at what they were up against to make these films i think you have to admire that because italy even though they still had a lot of problems with censorship they were long you know they were two decades past fascism so you know they were in a in a in an age by the 70s where they were able to do a lot more things whereas in spain they were fighting against you know the whole state basically to get these films made they were not critically acclaimed they were not really celebrated and they were just having to fight this thing constantly and if you look at that someone like nashi who went on and on and on and on in that just carrying on carrying on i think it's beautiful to actually see him get the acclaim that he really deserved because having to work against that must have been exhausting i think part of what uh some of the the the, the larger fans of euro trash or euro cult cinema i think what they see in a lot of the spanish stuff can be traced back to paul nashi in a way because nashi because of the constraints that he was under making movies in Spain and because of his influences, the things that he wanted to see on screen, he was primarily making monster movies. And there's a feeling within a large subset of Eurocult fans that feel that anything, once you get past the mid-60s, anything that looks back to Hammer or Universal or any of those kind of monster tropes is something that 
is automatically off-putting to them. It's kind of something they, they almost look at as silly and therefore something I don't want to indulge in because what I'm here for are the, the visceral, you know, kind of R-rated thrills, the things that are that are taboo that get thrown up on screen. And it's it's as if they want to stay away from that stuff. And it's like, well, this movie, <laughs> Dr. Jekyll and the Wolfman or the Werewolf, I, I can tell you, it's got so much taboo stuff in it that if they get past the monster thing, they would have discovered just how sleazy these damn things are. Yes, and wonderfully sleazy. And when you take the whole cultural context into account, you know, this is really kicking back at what the whole of Francoist Spain stood for with Catholicism, and it was very anti-sex. I mean, people like Jess Franco and Jose Loras couldn't even work there and make their films because they were just too... It's too transgressive. So I think, you know, you're right. If it wasn't for Paul Nashi, I mean, he almost, like, on his own, (laughs) made an entire industry. If you look at how prolific he was. And some directors were doing more, but no one as much as Nashi. And then other directors dipping in here and there. A lot of political directors in that period as well, just using genre as a mouthpiece. But, but they were doing they were doing that with the uh, spaghetti westerns as well. I mean that you know if you want to do that you can do it. But you know for him he, he just carried on prolifically under all that strain, and I just think it's just so remarkable. People often remove they look at sort of low budget European films and they remove the context, and I don't think you can remove the context whether the film is political or not is by the by. You have to look at, you know, why he had such low budgets for a start yeah. because of what he was up against. So I don't think you can separate the two. And I know people like to do that and say, well, we don't really need to know that. But it, it, you really get to appreciate who he was and how dedicated he was to this because he truly loved it. He wasn't in this horror thing because he thought it made a quick return or it was a good commercially because it fucking wasn't <laughs> in Spain. And, you know, he wasn't driven by that. He was driven by his own vision, which makes him stand out, I think, completely in that whole fold. And I don't think you should ever separate those things because it really get when you look at, I mean, my ex-husband's, my ex-mother-in-law live free Francoism and this was a time where women couldn't even go and get a cup of coffee on their own and couldn't have a bank account and people were always suspicious of their neighbours because somebody would disappear and they wouldn't see them again and it was like a really really difficult time I know for Nashi this the monsters and everything that was like an escape from that really repressive oppressive environment he found an escapism through that which is a beautiful thing well the thing is the thing for me has been the more i've learned about the context in which these films were made it it makes me it it allows me to enjoy them that much more because i see within them some things that probably were consciously placed there in his storytelling and some things that probably weren't just because you live. I mean, Nash lived his entire adult life until he was making films at, for a living under that fascist rule. Yeah. And so, there's no way that doesn't taint your outlook on life and your 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 way of of one, as you were saying, finding escapism, 
telling stories, uh, relating to everyone around you. It infects everything, whatever it is. If you live under that kind of repression, repression and repressive nature of, of a government that can be at your door at any time, that strange paranoia that can creep in, all of these things start to become more, these films start to become more interesting the more you learn about this stuff, or at least the more I learn about this stuff. I know that there are people who don't care about the context. They don't care what it grew out of yes. because they're just there for the thrills, and that's fine. That's one way to see these movies, and that's one to, one way to thoroughly and completely enjoy them. But it's always fascinating to me to learn a little bit more, especially about Nashi, who so clearly, as well, let's put it this way. You mentioned El Comandante earlier. In other words, by the late 70s, by the time Franco was dead and those restrictions had come off, his creativity burst through in a whole new, different oh, way. And he was making, I mean, he made the, from The Frenchman's Garden, The Transsexual, uh, El Comandante, those movies uh, he made up until about 1980. It, it's one of those things where you're just like, this is what this man could have been doing without those, you know, those those breaks on him. I know. That whole out, that whole out pouring just after Franco's death as well when we go into the transition period and they had the S certificate and the sex yep. cinemas and Spain suddenly book I just love that whole period because you can feel like you can just feel the excitement of the change and the freedom in the films and again you just can't I don't think you should separate those things because it doesn't give you a chance to appreciate how difficult it was and yeah, no, he wasn't making political statements. He's one of the few Spanish genre directors that didn't seem that politically motivated. But he did, like, you're right, he grew up in that climate, and that climate was all-encompassing. It affected everyone. It was like a period where fear just was, even in the 70s when Franco's getting a bit older and a bit softer and they're loosening up a bit, the scars of that, you know what's come before and there and it affects all that film i think all that period of spanish horror film you can see it in there it was like jose Larraz said when he did vampires he generally didn't like supernatural creatures because he'd seen real horror yeah like it's neighbors disappearing in the night and just the civil war and people fighting on the street like he'd seen that and so he developed even though he worked predominantly in britain he developed a very spanish style of horror there and couldn't actually work in spain so but then why well, did one film in spain in that period and came back afterwards in that late 70s period to do sex films so it was great i think paul nashi often gets shoved out of that though because he wasn't a statement filmmaker his films were more like you said they were more like fairy tales yeah more like yeah. dreams and they were more about escapism but they were still you know the, his whole obsession with dualism that has to have something to do with the environment and just you know the sort of things that people were thinking about at that time Espe oh, yeah especially once you get into the early 70s when you're you know there is some loosening up the country has started to you know since the early 60s has started to let tourists in because they desperately needed the income and you're starting to they're having to loosen things up a bit and so the this dichotomy between the old world and the new world i always think of as a really good reflection of Spain representing the old world and the modern world starting to creep in and those two things clashing so violently. Uh, Night, uh, A Candle for the Devil being one of the most perfect 
yeah. non-symbolic examples of that where it's just in your face. You'd have to be blind oh, to not see it. I love that film. Yeah. I absolutely love that film. But you're right. It is. It's, um, you know, when Spain opened up its borders and tried to reinvent itself as this cosmopolitan holiday destination, which is really popular with British people in the 70s. Like literally, when I grew up, everyone went to Spain. It was like the place to go. At the same time, you've got this old culture that's still going on. Like my mother-in-law said, she remembered the first time she saw people or women in bikinis, you know, that had come in, tourists. Mm-hmm. And they were still having to live this very traditional existence where they needed a chaperone. And, you know, it was just so alien to them and confusing as well because it was almost like two different worlds existed in that place, one for the tourists and then one for the people that actually lived there. So a very, very conflicted country in that regard. Well, um, you picked this film and, and I'm immensely grateful to you because there's a, when I started asking people to come on to talk about uh, just one of the Donetsky films, I wasn't sure how many people would you know pounce on you know the same movie. And luckily I haven't had too much of that. And this is one that, because it's been, it's, it's, it's not as easy to see as some of the others, especially now that several of them have come out on Blu-ray. I w- you, you, you stated at the beginning, you, you consider this, I mean, I'm guessing you consider this your favorite of the Dodensky films? I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I have a few. I, I really like the Yeti one. <laughs> I yeah. really like, I'm just going to list them all now. So. <laughs> I really like Frankenstein's Bloody Terror because of the S&M aspects. I think that's a gorgeous film. I really, really like the, the werewolf woman as well. So I almost chose that, but I thought I always talk about vampires. So <laughs> it'll do something a bit different. I don't know. It would be really hard for me to just pick one. So I thought this one, just because it's got all these amazing themes in it and these weird little aspects to the story it just kind of goes all over the place and you've got London in it as well which makes it a little bit different so yeah I wouldn't say it was my favourite favourite though I think out of the Daninsky's my favourite is Al Caminante though I think that film's a fucking masterpiece I championed it for so long and I just thought no one's going to be interested in this it's like a Spanish sex comedy and a medieval morality play. Well, I mean, outside oh. of outside of the Daninsky films, I think El Comandante is the best film he ever made. Oh, it's just so good. And so much context about it. But, yeah, it's mean to just say pick one. Cause <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean didn't mean to didn't mean to be cruel. I mean it's it's always difficult for for Troy and I on the show as well because we've um, you know we've covered fifty some odd Nashi films over the years. It, it becomes this this question of you know what are your fa- what are your favorites and the way, well, hey, well let's put it this way we we started the podcast not really being sure how to do this so the first episode we did was Frankenstein's Bloody St- Bloody Terror aka the Mark of the Wolfman his first film the second episode we did was Troy's first Nashi film, which was Horror Rises from the Tomb. And then the third episode we did was the first Nashi film I ever saw, which was The Werewolf and the Yeti or Night of the Howling Beast. So it becomes a question of what what was your starting point? And it's pretty random for pretty much everybody. And then your favorite becomes this bizarre test of yourself of, well, which one did I see most recently? <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. I can't even remember the first Nashi I saw. See, that's the thing. I can't even remember what my first Nashi was. I don't know. But I just, yeah. I suppose it depends what mood I'm in on any given day. There's, there's so many good films that he did, both within Daninsky and then outside of Daninsky. I just, yeah. Well, Miss El- Miss Ellinger, if we ask you back, uh, you can pick any Nashi film to talk about that you wish. Oh, that would be wonderful. Huh. Well, I'll let you stew on that, and it'll be, God knows, it'll be a couple of months before we <laughs> before we link up again like this. But I cannot thank you enough for coming and doing this. Oh, no, you're welcome. I've really enjoyed it. I know I've manipulated way more of your time than people are going to be listening to here. <laughs> and so, <laughs> thank you once again. You're welcome. Well, there you go. How do you like that? Good job, Kat. Thank you so much for joining us. That's awesome. Uh, and great choice of film, too. I was really excited when I heard she chose uh, Dr. Jekyll and the Wolfman. I mean, it. it um, I mean, it's right up there with the top, I think, oh, I of, the, of the L. Umbre Lobo films there. It, if, if not the best, maybe, but it's, it's, it's definitely right up there uh, at the top. It's just uh, so entertaining. And, and yeah, so many uh, strange and wonderful ideas going on there in that film. Well, just the the combination of those two characters, a werewolf and Dr. Jekyll, that alone Mm -hmm. is something that, as we said at the time we covered the film Mm -hmm. freaking years ago, it's like, who never thought of that? Why did did this never happen? Well, you know, know, one thing I thought about in listening to your talk with Kat, and it occurred to me that maybe one of the reasons that was never an idea that popped anybody's head is they might have made the, had the feeling that the beast, that the two creatures were almost too similar like there wasn't enough of a contrast because yeah, in a yeah. sense you both are dealing with the beastal side of man and obviously in a lot of the cinematic interpretations of Mr. Hyde very often is to kind of make him just basically a wolf man you know in a sense not all the you know some actors have opted to and some performances have opted to go with very little makeup and, and make it all more much more suggested but I think the classic doctor I mean Mr. Hyde excuse me that most people think of is you know like the Hollywood Mr. Hyde's you know uh, tend to be rather Harry, you know, and Mother Wolfman looking yeah, with the yeah. fangs and all that which, stuff. Which doesn't fit with what was on Robert Louis oh, not at all. page. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So, um, um, but but I think what Nashi does great is Nashi actually did find the contrast between the characters because really they aren't the same thing in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the main contrast to him was I think he saw the werewolf as a much more sympathetic character necessarily than Mr. Hyde and Jekyll. Now, you can... The story of Jekyll is definitely a tragic one, but he is ultimately kind of a victim of his own hubris rather than necessarily being cursed like your typical werewolf character is. And I think that here, Nashi really used not only the contrast in the, the monster types or the character types, but also in his own two acting styles that the, we've talked about Nashi before about um, how great he is with his eyes how much he expressive yeah. he is that he can manage to be both incredibly come off as incredibly menacing and evil and deranged and also incredibly sympathetic and sad and and he used both of those to make that contrast between these two characters here you know to yeah. really show that difference and i think the fact that he did that and also didn't go the route of of making it a ultimately ending in a confrontation between the two monsters the you know this whole bizarre thing about them sort of inhabiting the same body which is just yeah, brilliant. Which, which would make it incredibly difficult oh yeah it'd be kind of like the dr jekyll and sister hyde problem where, <laughs> yeah right how do you have the confrontation between mm. 
the two personalities that are mm-hmm. inhabiting the same body. Yeah. You know, yeah. The thing, the thing with the whole both both the Jekyll Hyde story and the, the typical werewolf story is at the heart, at the core. When you peel all the layers of the onion back, it's another variation on the whole idea of the uh, the duality of man, the whole mm-hmm. good versus evil aspect of every human being, and that that personality problem that ev- that everyone has to develop and work through themselves. Which is, you know, mm-hmm. how do you, you know, everyone views themselves as the hero of their own story, mm-hmm. but from the outside, how mm-hmm. are you viewed by the rest of the world? And Jekyll and Hyde is that very, mm. the, the very, you know, that very straight telling of a split. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, of course, that split is brought on because mm-hmm. this man is seeking knowledge that's probably, yeah. you know, that's you know, once again far outside the mm-hmm. the the ken of mortal man, and right. certainly in the realm of the gods and you know, whatever, <laughs> you, however you want to phrase it. But the the thing with the the Wolfman is it once again is is that same thing you're playing with the duality of man mm-hmm. and it is the the difference being that it's a curse it's not something someone seeks out mm-hmm. uh, although there are werewolf stories uh, mostly on the printed page and not so much in the movie where you're in the movies I mean where you're seeing uh, someone who actually seeks lycanthropy mm-hmm. as uh, something that they want they yeah. try to become a were creature they try to become a lycanthrope. Uh, that is not uh, it's not the standard though it's once again a, a question of that push and pull between the the two sides of the of human nature the desire for what you want mm-hmm. versus doing the right thing in in some instances and I think it's interesting that there have been versions of the Frankenstein story that also put that duality in the characters of the doctor yeah. uh, and the creature that he creates so mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a, a variation on the Jekyll Hyde story where the uh, that that interpretation of the Frankenstein story be, being a uh, it's certainly not every version of the Frankenstein story, but it's the breakdown of once again a hubris a hubristic person mm-hmm. seeking to do something that he should not be involved in. It's almost mm-hmm. almost always a morality play on someone mm-hmm. stretching stretching past the uh, the mm-hmm. fields in which they are allowed or should be allowed to play, and uh, by trying to be a god, actually creating something that is almost indispensably evil, uh, something that's so horrible, something that's so terrible that it can't be mm-hmm. reined in and therefore inevitably turns on yeah. the creator. And of course, that's the, the Jekyll Hyde story is that the Hyde, yeah. the Hyde persona becomes desirous of there being no other mm-hmm. side, wanting to be mm-hmm. uh, the, the main personality. And the, uh, the thing with uh, seeing these splits, these monster type characters that are as a split the frankenstein thing is a stretch when 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 films or, or novels go out of their way to to make that duality mm-hmm. uh theme part of a frankenstein story it's a bit of a stretch it can be done it's not yeah. that difficult but it is not something that's naturally built within the way those stories are normally told especially mm-hmm. on screen but with jekyll and hyde and the wolfman of course they're they're just staring you in the face yeah yeah we i, I was Kind of uh, thrilled to to get into the to the the details once again of this movie because Nashi really is kind of playing three characters. Yeah, yeah, and that is an amazing mm. thing to see yeah. because by this point in his career, Nashi's got some chops. Yeah, he's yeah. not he's not uh you know working instinctually the way he was in like Mark of the Wolfman. He's not somebody mm-hmm. who's Who's trying, you know, trying really hard to be as good as he can be. He's more settled in. He's got enough experience on screen. He's seen himself on screen often enough to know, yeah. you know, when to go big, when to be small, mm-hmm. uh, how much subtlety to use, how much, to, how much uh, action and movement mm-hmm. can translate into something that seems more and more menacing or less and less, uh, less and less menacing. However, you want to play it, mm-hmm. 
And it's really beautiful to watch that that interplay uh, between the bestial monster mm. of the werewolf and the bestial monster yeah. of Hyde. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Although I still can't figure out where the clothes, how the clothes change. <laughs> well, yeah. The clothes change. That, 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 that disco sequence, when he changes, is like, suddenly, whoa, how did the clothes happen? I don't know. <laughs> Oh man! Well, speaking of the clothes, of course, you know as we know the uh, yeah. I'm glad you guys uh, touched on the uh, the 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 great uh, Mr. Hyde outfits and the you know, <laughs> this is yeah. Always like what she had to say. She's yeah, like the, the, about yeah. the the cape, the, yeah, uh, the half yeah. cape. It's it's, yeah. it's pretty true. And I got to say, cat man, mm. uh, it is good. It is always good to get that reinforcement. I've had more than a few mm. women tell me this, but it's something that you and I almost never really think that much about because mm. we're heterosexual males mm. but as she pointed out no now she had it going on yeah he was and, he could sport the threads man yeah yeah i mean he was he was a, he was a mm. handsome guy and it's yeah. something i think both of us tend to lose track of because mm. he in a lot of ways i hate to put it this way but i've always kind of grouped nashy in with uh shall we say other werewolf portrayers mm-hmm. and especially kind of wondered well are mm. women really going to fall for this guy? Mm. I mean, yeah, okay. Mm. Nah, she wrote the script, so yeah, women sure, are going to fall for him. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah, physically, like, is he, mm. and then, you know, to talk to several different women over the years, and they yeah. all say, well, yeah, he was a good-looking dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, yeah. that's, you know. It's and, good to have that reinforced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I especially think when he throws on the old, uh, you know, facial hair and everything, you know, he's, he's quite dashing, you know, when he's got yep. the yep. got that look going on. So, uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he pulls off a, a, a you know, cape and, and top hat better than, than I do, you know, so I was just going to, you know, so. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have a cape? You yeah, I don't have the cape. I've got the top hat. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, of course my thought was, you know, every time I see him is, uh, is that people just think it was screaming Lord such, you know, walking <laughs> for another old reference there. And all that's, <laughs> <laughs> that one's worth looking up folks. Screaming Lord such, such. Yeah. YouTube search that one. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have some fun. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, it's great to have her on there. To, uh, you know, she said she chose this film. One of the reasons, she chose this was because of this sexual transgressiveness of it and yeah. I think it's it's really good to hear female perspectives on that and and for her you know as she mentioned female horror fans are drawn a lot to Euro horror it's good because people do get that impression that it's just that oh, the whole Euro horror club, fandom yeah. is just made up of fanboys in their mama's basement you know and what you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh and you know, and it's 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 it's. I think it's it speaks a lot for uh, European horror that it that it attracts female fans because I think they do. You know, like everybody, they respond to the transgressiveness of it. You know, and the and the different takes that it 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 does on sexuality. And I very much like hearing the opinions, especially on these films that are, mm. shall we say, transgressive. It is sexually transgressive in a lot mm. of ways, but also just on any of these. Uh, Euro horror films from the 60s through the 80s, I love getting the female perspective on it because, I, you know, I hate to say it, but it is completely alien to my way of thinking sure. in a lot of ways. A lot of the, uh, mm. there's a, the Venn diagram of the way women think about these movies and the way men think about these movies, I think there's, a, it's not, it, it there's an overlap. There's a lot of overlap there because, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. we're all reacting to the same film and the same stories and the same mm-hmm. characters. We're all looking at that. But, it's those differences. It's that mm-hmm. whatever that percentage difference between how we view them and how we come at these stories and characters, that's the stuff that I can't I can't wait to dig more into that in mm-hmm. the coming years mm-hmm. and to try to get more and more women's perspectives on these films. Because like I want to get like I say, I want to get Kat on to talk about you know, another Donetsky film, maybe Har Rises from the Tomb from the Tomb or something like that. Yeah. Because getting these different perspectives, once again, I've always we've talked about this for years, man. 
I want to hear what other people think about these because yeah. they'll they'll have a perspective, they'll have an idea, they will see a connection that I have never considered, and that that fires my imagination. It makes me so happy because the more ideas that are out there about these things, the more mm-hmm. there is to think about these movies, mm-hmm. the more ways into it. The, the, it, it, it opens up these things. These movies have always kind of been like a, a flower. Every time I see them, I see something different. And to have someone else come in with a completely different perspective who loves it. I mean, yeah, Kat, yeah. Kat clearly, oh, yeah. clearly loves true. these movies. Yeah. And her perspective is so different from mine, not just because she's British, but because she's a woman and because mm. she's coming at it from a different background in films mm. that she's seen, the films that she grew up with and the media that she grew mm. up reading and looking at all her life. And so this is the kind of thing that I love it. It's the same reason why you and I have always bounced off each other well, because, yeah, we have a different perspective. We grew up. Basically, I mean, come on. We grew up in Tennessee, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> sure. Our our our, our yeah. experiences growing up weren't that different, no. but the differences do give us different perspectives. When mm-hmm. we saw the movies, at what age, mm-hmm. how we how we came to them, what we what we thought of them at the time, mm-hmm. the things that we were watching and reading and mm-hmm. listening to at the times that we first encountered these things, and these these different perspectives are great. And like I said. Nobody else thought to pick that particular movie mm-hmm. to talk about initially. Yeah, I'm so glad she did, just as you mm-hmm. said, because mm-hmm. there's there's so much. To, I seriously think I could do three three hour podcasts mm-hmm. with different people about that one film because oh, yeah. there is so much there. I could spend like a, a mm-hmm. good forty five minutes just picking apart the opening scene mm-hmm. uh, that sets the movie up with at Jack the party, Taylor yeah, with at the, that party, yeah. yeah. Because there's just so many things going on in that oh, yeah, scene with yeah. the the animal heads on the walls mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. the different ideas that are kind of floating around there weirdly. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the actor in it, who um, I don't know if you noticed, but the the actor in it is the guy who played the butler. Oh yeah, right. Los, I know exactly Los, pa- about, yeah. uh, Los Pasajero, yeah. Los Pasajeros. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The weird, weird little <laughs> yeah. uh, weird little film we cut we covered last year. Uh-huh. Um, that actor who apparently was just really well. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. what, that's what I'm talking about. Is where there's so much to talk about within the, the scope yeah. of this film. But well, it's uh, you know you mentioned uh, Jack Taylor, of course. You know, it's just how great he's only you know only Jack Taylor can. Can deliver like can can lay out his plan to cure the Wolfman, and, <laughs> and 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 it almost sounds you know, it almost sounds like it could work, Jack, because of your way of because delivering it. He delivers the line. It's yeah. just you know, then you step back and you're like, no, this is an insane plan. Yeah. It if, at any, if at any point you pause the film <laughs> yeah. and give any thought whatsoever to, to, to it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think that could happen, <laughs> and yet. And yet, and yet. <laughs> if he hadn't got stabbed in the back by an evil woman, yeah, yeah, he might have been able to pull it off. <laughs> um, and I, I like that uh, uh, y'all touched on the um, that the story really spoke to Nashi, I think, because of his love for dualisms, you know, in his stories. Yeah. You know that that's something that in so many of his stories, and this just kind of like really gave him something he could really dig into the potentials there. And uh, we see that in so many of his films, and um, you know, we. Uh, the audio commentary we did for the upcoming Beast and the Magic Sword. There's a plug there for you folks. Uh, for oh, the, uh, the well, Sword. it's actually out. Yeah, it's like upcoming. It's actually out yeah, now. It's been out for a while. Yes, yeah, so you can get it and you can hear our commentary. I don't know if I can't remember now if we even if we, I know it, we talked about so much. Even as long as that film is, we we had so much to talk about. I don't know if we ever got around to even mentioning 
that film is just rife with you know with those kind of parallels and dualisms yeah. that that Nashi loves, and this film is 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 that way too. You know, there's just so much between having those two characters. He must have been drooling like El Hombre Lobo to realize <laughs> like all the potential he could do there with that with that those characters. I can't stories. remember uh, if we talked about the dualism theme mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. Beast and the Magic Sword. I think it was in my notes, but whether I got to it because who knows? I mean, there was so much to talk about with that. Yeah, here, here's a little here's a little peek behind the curtain, folks. <laughs> uh, when we do these commentary tracks for Nashi films or whatever else we we talk about on these when we get these jobs uh, there are a lot of things that get left on the cutting room floor yeah absolutely now granted the length of Beast of the Magic Sword <laughs> meant that very little yeah. got left yeah. out <laughs> yeah because we had a whole lot of time mm. to cover but there are still things that got left out just because yeah. Yeah. there's not enough space we can keep talking <laughs> we probably and we joke we kind of joke at the time almost every time we do one of these commentary tracks is that we probably could do another full commentary track and just keep digging into this stuff yeah but uh you know, nobody's going to do that. That's, that's your madness. <laughs> but you're right. There are times when we thought, like, man, I could have used a whole other <laughs> track you know, yeah, for that one, yeah. you know, especially some of these 80-minute films that we, we oh, do. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, but you and, and Kat mentioned uh, one, of the, one of the great parallels in the film because it mentioned how Nashi deals with rape in most of his films, that he uses yeah. it as a way to set offset the villains from the, the noble character nature of Valdemar Daninsky. Yeah. He very often saves women from these kind of attacks. And he does in this film. But it's great later in the film the way he turns that on his head because when he becomes Mr. Hyde, then he commits that exact act oh, that he tried, you know, which is yeah. And so so he kind of used what he had set up in the previous films, what you've expected from that character, to then really have something really harsh and kind of really show you how the evil yeah. of Mr. Hyde, knowing what Daninsky himself would think of, if, if, of this, you know, would, how he would react to this. It's such a weird thing though, to use, to just so casually, it almost feels casually to, to use rape. So willingly within the structure of these stories. And I know that well, it, it ups, it ups the ante. <laughs> and of course it's a really cheap way to get nudity on screen. Sure. Of course. I mean, there's the, yeah, there's always going to be that exploitative, side of it there but yes if you believe Nash's films you know every every wandering villager is a rapist you know waiting to <laughs> waiting for just, his opportunity exactly yeah. I mean yeah yeah that's another that's another thing too is is uh, again the the uh, the way Nashi portrays the the vill- villagers in these films are always just they're either thieves like you know completely like superstitious mobs waiting to happen or yeah. rapists <laughs> yeah this is true <laughs> Fury of the Wolfman, a strange and mysterious story packed with intrigue and horror. What was the terrible secret that haunted Walter Mendeninsky and that threw him into a world of violence and terror? This is the story of a haunted man, a life bewildered by mystery and horror. And nothing could keep Dr. Elman away from using even grave tombs for her horrible experiments. Don't worry. His mind is dominated.
Next up on the National Cast, another first-time interviewee, mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, Robert Monell is someone who's been a guest over on the Bloody Pit with me for a couple of uh, shows back last year. And actually, he and I have sat down and recorded a commentary track together that came out last year mm-hmm. for Mondo Macabro's release of the very strange Spanish film Killer of Dolls. Now, the really sweet thing is that if you buy that Blu-ray... You can hear the commentary track that Mr. Monell and I did together, but you can also hear one by Cat Ellinger. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, that's it's right. It's the, all it's it's, it's amazing. You get, you get all of us all in one. <laughs> we just excluded Troy from that as uh, well. Yes, thanks. Thanks for nothing. Yeah, thanks for. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, I knocked it. You know, I rang the bell. I knocked on the door. I peeked in the windows, but the lights were out. I just you know, and I, I just I, sat I, there, I just sat there, recording away and yeah. holding up my middle finger as you looked in the window. It was perfect. It was. perfect. I tell you, but uh, in a strange way, this episode does turn out to be kind of a, a strange, uh, I guess, uh, return mm-hmm. of the people who put uh, commentary tracks on the Killer of Dolls Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Now, I warn you, Killer of Dolls is really strange. I don't know if I've said that enough, but Killer <laughs> of Dolls is a strange movie. But you get two commentary tracks on that Blu-ray, and it is worth your time. Uh, so actually the first time Mondo Macabro has ever done two commentary tracks for the same film. And wow, I think that wow. that's, that's, I'm hoping good. that's something that yeah, they continue yeah. doing for going forward. Mm. I think that would be mm. pretty cool. But Mr. Monel is, uh, he's a man who's been uh, talking and writing, uh, blogging about uh, Euro horror, Euro trash, uh, Euro, whatever you want to call it. This kind of film for uh more than 40 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a great blog called I'm in a Jess Franco State of Mind. I mm-hmm. highly recommend it if you have any interest in Jess Franco whatsoever. His thoughts on the subject are always intri- intriguing and often enlightening. He has started popping up in uh, video extras on uh, Jess Franco films here and there. But uh, Mr. Monell is a, is a writer, a commentator, and uh, hopefully he will uh, he will be doing more uh, commentary tracks for uh, European films in the future. But right now, luckily, I've been able to ratchet him down, and I asked him to pick a Daninsky film to Mm -hmm. talk about, and he leapt at the one (laughs) that I figured nobody would leap at. (laughs) He decided to talk about Fury of the Wolfman, but interestingly enough, Mm -hmm. he had a really really odd way of getting into the talk about Fury of the Wolfman. So... Hang on, folks. This is interesting. This is something I definitely did not know until he and I sat down to talk. A wild battle in a world full of gruesome violence and horror. A world of the lowest passions. This is the story of a man who changed into a wild beast. There's something strange. What are you going to do now? I want you to listen carefully to this, Danitsky. This is the drama of a normal human being, a professor of psychology who got involved into mystery and crime, who was wanted by the police, who could not help changing into a furious animal. Only love could make an end to his torture. Don't miss the fury of the Wolfman. Action, violence, horror, filmed with more realism than you can imagine. The Fury of the Wolfman, a Max Burr film production. I 
welcome to the Nashi cast for the very first time, the legendary Robert Monell, Euro trash, Euro cult cinema fiend and expert par excellence. Uh, I've talked with him over on the Bloody Pit several times, but I've never had him on the Nashi cast, and I'm very excited because he has decided to pick, uh, well, uh, the weirder of the 70s Daninsky films, uh, Fury of the Wolfman to talk about. But before that, uh, you were telling me something else, some review that you found somewhere? Yes. Hi, Rod. And thanks again for having me on today. Now, um, what I did, uh, first of all, I I rewatched Fury last night, and I've seen it many, many times. I think it was the first Nashi werewolf film I saw. I think the first Nashi film I saw was Horror Rises from the Tomb on that old Charter VHS. I I picked that up in the late 80s and saw that. and was pretty impressed. And then then I... finally saw the fury of the wolfman i can't remember where i first saw it it was the first werewolf film of his i think i saw it on an, an old video then i ended up getting in in the early days of dvd and i've got a number of dvds of it okay and uh, all they're, they're all the a cut version there's a of course there was a, a version which had some other stuff in it some nudity that wasn't in the cut version but they're all the cut version and and dubbed and cut version what i did i had always assumed Nashi made his first werewolf movie, first horror movie, and well, I guess he made a jowl before that, 1968, wasn't it? Uh, you know, the... Uh, Mark of the Wolf. Frankenstein's, right, Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, right. it was called here in the U.S. It didn't show here, I don't think, until 71. Uh, Sam Sherman, I believe, played it in Los Angeles. And um, there's a lot of history here, okay? Because Nashi got a late start in America. And then... Uh, he made uh, several other werewolf films. Uh, supposedly, the the second one was Assignment Terror, which was uh, had just come out on a really nice Blu-ray of that, and which really upgraded my opinion of the film. And um, but there was another Nashi film that he had talked about in interviews, in old interviews, that he had supposedly made called the The Night of the Wolfman, I believe, and. Uh, Supposedly, it disappeared, and there was never a print of it found. There was no record of it being made, and no one ever found it. But Nashi kept insisting throughout his life that it did exist and it was made, and the director was never found. And uh, okay, and here's the title of it. Now, interestingly enough, I did some research on this supposed lost film, and the title from the Phil Hardy Encyclopedia of the Horror Film, which came out in the mid 1980s. I've had, I've got, I've used this book so many times, it's shredded. You know what I mean? So I've lost a lot of pages from it. But I'm lucky I have this page from 1968, a review of this supposedly lost film, and it's also called the Overlook Dictionary and Bill Hardy's book. Now, in the review, in the 1960 review of the night films that came out in 1968, international horror films, it's called La Noches del Hombre Lobo, the Nights of the Wolf, the Nights of the Wolfman, I believe that would. Um, translate to it says aka knights of the werewolf and it yeah, says yeah, that's company. what i've always heard it called when uh, when nashi would talk about it yeah now i want to read the entire review here okay just so people will hear it it will be this might be the first time this review's ever been read on the the review's ever been read on an internet show okay i believe okay and okay it says the production company was ken kin films and that it was a spanish french cult production and it said it was in Cinemascope shot in Cinemascope, eighty-two minutes long. Okay, now remember those two last pieces of information: shot in Cinemascope and eighty-two minutes long. Okay. Okay. 
Now, here's the review. Now, they don't put down who wrote the reviews in this. Apparently, Phil Hardy, the editor, wrote may have written some, and I, I think Tom Milner um, wrote some, and some other lesser or more known critics wrote some, but no one signed this review. So I'm going to read the review if that's okay with you. Go ahead, please. Okay, and it says, Now, this rarely seen combination of Jesus Franco-type surgical and werewolf motifs, a sequel to the equally unhappy attempt to combine vampires and werewolves, according to this review, La Marca del Hombre Lobo, 1967, uh, that was his first werewolf film made before this Bloss film, again features Molina as Daninsky, Waldemar Daninsky. This time out, he helped, He seeks help from a mad scientist who uses the unhappy lycanthrope to get rid of hostile colleagues. Molina eventually, however, goes berserk and kills the scientist before meeting his own end. Now, that's the end of the plot synopsis. Now, they go on to give you like about a, a paragraph of um, commentary. Quote, sources give conflicting information about the film. Although shot in Paris, there is no record of its release in France, and director Govar is not listed in any of the production catalogs as ever having made another picture, but suggests he may have used a pseudonym. For his next appearance as Count Valdemar Daninsky, Los Mastros del Terror, 1969, a.k.a. Assignment Terror, Molina figured as merely... Molina figured merely as one item in a catalog of familiar horror creatures. But he returned to more conventional story material with La Noche del De Walpurgis, 1970, and with the subsequent titles in the series La Furia del Hombre Lobo, which is the Fury of the Wolfman in English, and Dr. Jekyll E. L. Hombre Lobo, Dr. Jekyll and the Wolfman in The Werewolf, both 1971, and El Returno del Hombre Lobo, which is The Craving or Night of the werewolf again or the return of the the return of the werewolf i believe the 1981 and finally la bestia el espada magica 1983 which was just released on blu-ray beast and the magic sword of course right that's the end of the review now says now we have a credits list which i'm also going to read i just want to read everything yeah i was going to be i was going to say well yeah let's hear the credit listing let's see who else is in this uh, phantom film that somehow someone saw I've never heard of anybody else in, in this credit list except Nashi, okay? Director, co-screenwriter, Rene Govar, G-O-V-A-R. Co-screenwriter, Jacinto Molina, who's Paul Nashi's Paul real name. Carlos Bellario, B-E-L-A-R-I-O. Leading players, Paul Nashi, Jacinto Molina, in parenthesis. Monique Brainville, B-R-A-I-N-V-A-L-L-E, obviously a French actress who I've never heard of. Helen Vettel, Helen, H-E-L-E-N-E, Vettele, or Vettel, V-A-T-E-L-L-E, my French is not too good. Um, I've never heard of this, I've never heard of that French actress, and the last one is Peter Beaumont, B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T, period. Now that's, now I've never heard of the director or any of the other actors besides Nashi and Miss Quince. Okay, so for those who are unaware, um, no one has ever seen this movie, as far as I've ever been able to ascertain. Uh, Nashi uh, claimed at various times that uh, they filmed for a couple of weeks and then you know they ran out of money. There are different stories about the production, whether the production happened or not. Um, uh, at different times, I've heard different tales about it possibly having been finished and then uh, there never having been enough money to actually edit the thing together or to strike a final print. Or I've heard various stories. But as far as I know... 
No one has ever seen a finished print of this movie, the the quote-unquote second Donitsky film that, you know, uh, to be honest, was probably never made. So the fact that there's a review of it in the Overlook Encyclopedia, the Phil Hardy books, uh, I never even thought to look there. I have that book, and I never thought to look there to, to just determine whether or not this Phantom movie was going to be claimed to have been seen. And, and, excuse me, I just want to give you some geographic coordinates here. It's on page 198 of the book, okay? Okay, okay. 198, it's in the book. It's in the section about 1986, 1968 films, I'm sorry. Uh, man, she was still making films in 1986, but 1968. And they, and they reviewed it, and um, they reviewed it as a rarely seen combination of Jess Franco, is even named in the review type, surgical yeah. werewolf motifs. And 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 they reviewed it. It sounds like the the person who reviewed it saw it. Um, he the well, they reviewed. They, they it sounds like the first paragraph is a synopsis. So maybe yeah. they just got, they maybe they just found a synopsis in production. And then it says sources give conflicting information about the film. And then it says it was shot in Paris. No record of its release in France. And uh, there's no there's no real comment on the film except they give you a synopsis and then they said sources. Give conflicting information on the film, and there's no record of its release. So even they, yeah, it's my suspicion that nobody actually saw this movie, and yeah, that they're probably working off of some kind of uh, press release or something like that, trying to be inclusive, which would, which is where they might have gotten a list of, you know, that list of actors and even a director name. So what I'm suspecting is that they decided to include it for, you know the desire to be, you know, completely inclusive, to have everything, everything, everything. But yeah, no, I, I don't, this is, this is fun. This is, this is amusing. I cannot wait uh, to present this information to my co-host Troy, because it's going to freak him out because he has these books as well. But the, the, uh, thing, the thing about it is, excuse me, Grant, that every other review in this book is actually of a released film. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read this book many times. I think I've read every review of films that I would never see, but this has been based virtually the only film I could think of in the whole book, and this is considered an encyclopedia where they where they review a film that they either haven't seen or that wasn't released. Uh, so that that's interesting, right there. And they have a lot of information on it. Kin K I N Films, production company I've never heard of. So yes, I agree with you that apparently. It wasn't released, and they worked from a synopsis, to, uh, maybe a press synopsis, saying this is this is coming out, and here's the cast, and it was shot in Paris, and blah blah blah, and they're just reporting on the press release, <laughs> which they don't do for any other film in the book, I don't think. I mean, listen, at least I haven't seen any, so that that's really unusual, I think. Well, it is unusual, and of course, the thing is, is that Nashi talked when Nashi talked about this in uh, in interviews later on, and you know, as the years went by, mm-hmm. uh, he completely copped to the fact that he reworked ideas that he had written into that script, and and kind of cannibalized it to use in other Daninsky films and other right. movies later on, which of course makes sense when you think about um, especially Fury of the Wolfman if you if you're going to set it in an academic world well boom Fury of the Wolfman is the uh, the other film in that series where it's set in the academic world and it does have a, a definite mad scientist one of the maddest female mad scientists in the history of cinema so you can see him reworking things and right. 
kind of taking the bits and pieces that he thought maybe worked the best when he first wrote it and, and using it later on and hopefully, you know, to his mind, probably trying to find a way to improve it or to do something different with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, but that that's absolutely fascinating. Of course, if, if there were papers signed, if there were, you know, legal papers signed to actually try to get this film off the ground, the reason he may never have just reused the same script would be to make sure that nobody involved in that aborted production could lay claim to any profits from anything, you you know, with that script. So what you do is you just, of course, you're smart and you cannibalize some of the ideas. You construct a whole new script. And, you know, if anybody wants to try to, you know, take it to court or arbitrate it in some bizarre way, you can point to the fact that these are definitely not the same story, but you know, Jacinto Molina was, was, was very smart in reusing these kind of things. I mean, it wasn't until I rewatched uh, Fury of the Wolfman just the other night that I remembered that this was the first film to, uh, to put that whole idea of uh, a Yeti into a Daninsky film, which he would of course then use again later on in night of the howling beast, right, AKA right. the werewolf and the Yeti. And then he, uh, uh, and he, and the, uh, some of a couple of other uh, smaller ideas that are in fury of the Wolfman, he ended up using to different effect in uh, a couple of later films as well. And it's just one of those things where, uh, you can see him not to the extent that Jess Franco would, you know, use and reuse the same story ideas or the same co- same concepts or plots, as if he were attempting to kind of find a way to refine something down to some, you know, granular, uh, perfect gem. But more along the lines of taking pieces that are part part of the the kinds of stories that he loves so much and rearranging them or adding detail or stretching something in a different direction because uh, a lot of these ideas always return to some of the same tropes. Um, if, if Fury of the Wolfman was the first of the Daninsky films that you saw, did you, did you originally see it on television or did you see it in the theater? Well, going back to this for one minute, there's a few more okay, points sorry. we can make about La no- this La Noche's project. We'll call it a project, okay? Um, <laughs> uh, the, the film was half made or aborted or whatever. It says here also that the film is in scope, shot in scope, so just the fact that they have the, the – the, the, I mean, that's that, that's an interesting detail, okay, 82 minutes. By the way, Fury of the Wolfman was also shot in scope and is also 82 minutes long, approximately, okay? So I don't know if that's a coincidence or whatever, but whatever. Yeah. I think and – and I think – I believe that um, uh, the the first one, um, you know, Frankenstein's Mark of the Wolfman, yeah. Right, Mark of the Wolfman. I believe that was originally shot in scope. And I believe that um, – and, of course, the uh, – the one that recently released on Blu-ray, uh, Simon Terror, was also shot in scope. So a lot of them seem to be have shot in scope, but the the one that wasn't shot in scope was uh, uh, Werewolf Shadow or La Noche de Wolfurgis, which started the Spanish horror boom. Okay, but going back to La Noche, uh, I had also read Paul Nash in some old interviews. There was one in that uh, Video Ooze, remember that magazine? Oh that, yeah. The, there was one in there he talks about it. Then there's some other. Then I've got some other old interviews. I think there was one in Blood Times. That was a magazine. It was a zine I used to write for in the late 1980s. Okay, going way back. I started a long time ago in this business, and uh, <laughs> I, be- I believe he actually says, or uh, I've I read a number of them. I don't even have the edition anymore. That he says that he talks about the film as it was, as if it was made. And I believe he said something to the effect that, that there are scenes where you see the wolfman on the rooftops of Paris, okay? That's what I remember of it. Or maybe maybe he meant that they shot scenes on the wolf on the, that were set there. And here it also says that it was shot in Paris, okay? And yeah. Nash had mentioned it. So once again, 
this all suggests, strongly suggests, I'll give you the scenes were shot, actors were lined up, and it was never finished. Or if it was finished, it wasn't released due to financial reasons. What interests me is no one's ever heard of this Rene Govar or doing any other films, and I've never heard of any of these other cast members. So, uh, I mean, you think they'd be in other films. I've never I've Googled them and everything, and I've never heard of any of them. I, I don't get anything on them. So that's it's really a kind of a mystery. And uh, But I believe there was something happened there, but it never did get released. Now, going back to, uh, yeah, the, going back to the questions about, I, th- I think people who are interested in Paul Nashi trivia will be interested in that review if they have the, the, the this book and may want to look it up themselves. And, oh, yeah, definitely. Going back to Fury the Wolfman, I had seen that. The first Nashi film I saw, as I said earlier, was Horror Rises from the Tomb, which I was really very impressed by. It's got zombies, it's got cannibalism, it's got... Uh, everything. Everything you want to have in a good horror film, okay? And that's a good one. That's one of my favorite Nashi films. And and, and, then I, and then there was a video store near me in the late 80s and early 90s. I didn't get... I didn't get into DVD until like in about 1999 or 2000. So I was going through video and there was, there was a lot of Nashi videos I used to rent out. Like um, Inquisition was on video. Uh, there was another one, uh, Vengeance of the Zombies, I believe was on uh, wizard video. And I, I was, so I was totally into Nashi videos, but uh, and then I, I rented out a, a, a very poor video of, but one of the first DVDs I got, I think the first Nashi DVD I got was Fury of the Wolfman. It was, uh, once again, a cheap video label. It was full screen. and I, But I just enjoyed the hell out of the movie. And it was obviously a, you know, a cut and paste directorial job, okay? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a real mess, especially when you... Uh, if you if if Fury of the Wolfman is the first of the Daninsky films you see, uh, if you then later on see Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, aka the Mark of the Wolfman, you're going to recognize where some of those sequences come from. Right, and that's what I wanted to talk about. First of all, going back to this Las Noches del Hombre, Las Noches del Hombre Lobo review, it says that there was once again there was a, a scientist who uses unhappy the unhappy lymphocyte to go to hostile colleagues. Now the mad scientist in Fury of the Wolfman is Perla Cristal, who uh, Argentina, I believe she was from Argentina and first appeared in, she appeared in Franco's, um, you know, uh, Ritos en la Noche, his first famous horror film, uh, The Awful Dr. Orloff. She, she also appeared in the sequel to that, uh, yeah. El Secreto de la, de Dr. Orloff, Dr. Orloff's Monster. So she was, she appeared in other horror films and a very good actress. And uh, she plays the doctor. Now, in, in the, in the storyline, her father, who she's, some kind of mutant now who she's hiding and protecting in this in this remote castle where she's got all her equipment is what the one of the, one of the police officers says well yeah he was a scientist who killed other doctors okay ah I, yeah that's it true just, it just I heard that last night he he's on the phone with this reporter who's who's investigating Perla Cristal and the mystery of why is she um, Paul Nash she plays a scientist who's disappeared and she's kidnapped him and brought him to this castle and remote area of, I don't know, I don't even know where <laughs> the Wolfman is supposed to be taking place, I guess in Spain, <laughs> you know, and, uh, well, it's she's, vaguely, she, vaguely middle Europe, yeah. right? But middle, but she's using something called chemotrodes or chemotrodes as some kind of mind control to, um, to, to make him into her slave, you know, and, and also her father apparently, 
used the same method to develop these, this mind control device, but he was using it to, to kill other doctors, okay? So in other words, he was using it, he was, a, he was using it to get rid of hospital colleagues. So that sounds like it comes from this, this script. script. Yeah. This script. He was using it to go, he's not the main character in it, but they talk about him at the end. Yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the reporter says, yeah, the, her, her father, I believe, is up to this castle, and she's up there, and they're, they're working together. And he says, "Oh yes, him." He goes, the, "The the we thought he was dead, but he was the he was the scientist of other scientists who were like his who were like his uh, contemporaries who disagreed with his ideas." So yeah, he used that. Yeah, and also the whole idea of uh, you, you first see in Fury the Wolfman, one of the first things you see is Nashi returning from t- uh, you know a disastrous trip to Tibet where they were attacked by a yeti. Okay, which he right. later used a, a better film, a better made film at least. Uh, the, the werewolf and the yeti and uh but that now i also heard that that footage was shot by another director okay it wasn't shot oh by, you mean those kind of flashback scenes to when yes. he's when he's recovering with the uh with right. the the monk and everything yes when he's recovering with him if you look i was watching this just again last night they look like they're done by a total they look like a stock footage from another film basically Right. Yeah, and, but uh, Nashi is definitely there. I mean, that's what's so weird about it. Yeah, Nashi's Nashi. Now, I had read somewhere, and I don't know if you could. I, I don't remember where this was. Like when I first got into Nashi, and I was reading a lot of stuff on the internet. I was reading a lot of there was a lot of little fanzine stuff about them. That that was footage shot by another director. Okay, who who started this film, but was somehow let go. And that uh, Zabalza, Jose Maria Zabalza, who we're going to talk, I guess we should talk about for the rest of this. Yeah, probably. He was hired as I just read. I was just reading his Wikipedia thing, and he was he was he was hired as a contract director to direct this film. He had earlier made some kind of arty films, art films, in the early set in the early '60s in Spain, which didn't do that well, and maybe some documentaries. And um, he went to this. Interestingly enough, he went to the same film school in Paris, I believe, or in, in, with Jess Franco. They they both attended this film school together in the late '40s, or early '50s. They were both in the same class. Uh, and they both went on to make, you know, low-budget horror films in the 60s and 70s, okay? But uh, in any case, Jeez. outside of that, uh, he later in his career, when this came up, he was contracted out to make this. He made Italian Westerns, which were popular at the same time, and he made some Euro crime films. I've, I've seen one of his Italian Westerns on YouTube. It's called Rebels of Arizona or Rebels del Arizona. It's on. So it was on YouTube. I don't know if it's on there anymore. I, I couldn't even watch the whole thing. It was very dull. It was in Spanish only. Very little action. Lots of dialogue. Okay, <laughs> not good. Not good for a western. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't watch the whole thing. It was interesting. Um, also, my friend Nazug, uh, whom we all know is a Spanish horror expert, told me that uh, he, he he actually found a an old print that he uh, let me see of one of Zavala's gangster films. It took, takes place in Chicago in the, I think in the thirties or forties. It was, it has some interesting parts in it, but there's the action scenes aren't particularly well handled. It's very talky and kind of the same thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, so you know, though I saw those two films, it didn't want me, didn't want to make me see more of his films. Okay, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've never, I've never thought that it would be a great idea. Uh, well, until the recent years, I've never thought it would be a good idea to like delve into his entire catalog. I will say that there, I've re- I've now read some reviews of some of his other films, which which seems to point toward him not being uh, not being the total disaster that this movie make me would make me think that he is. Right. 
Right. Apparently, he he directed some in, rather interesting art type films in his early career. In his later career, he only I, be, I believe he died in like 1985, and he was born in mid 30s. So he, he was he died under 60 years of age. Now, according to some Nashi reviews, Nashi says he was a heavy he was an alcoholic. Apparently, from one one of the reviews one of the interviews I read with Nashi, Nashi said he was very upset yeah. the way the filming was going. Zabalza was drinking a lot. He was collapsing on the set when the producer showed up and I don't know if you remember him saying that, but I, I think that's, in- I do. I, I've heard, I've, well, I've read his remarks on that on, in several different places. And also I think that for Nashi to a large degree, who was still at that point, you know, a young guy trying to figure out how he was going to, you know, make his, make his way in the movie industry. Right. I think this was a very disconcerting thing for him because right. he had a, a director that he really, that everything got away from him. This director right. is not someone that he, um, that he found he could trust. And, and a lot of that stems from stuff you can see in the movie too, where you have somebody else in the werewolf makeup, like walking down the street as if he's right. like walking down to get a smoke or something. Right. And it's, yeah. it, none of it cuts together well. And then stealing footage from uh, the earlier movie, uh, right. you can, you can see why Nashi was himself. So very frustrated with how the thing turned out. So whether or not Zabalza was actually an alcoholic or not, uh, there does seem to be some evidence that he had a problem with drinking. Oh, man, it feels like a movie made by by someone who was inebriated. I'll say that. Right. And uh, the only thing I could think of this film when I was watching it last night, I was laughing to myself, was cognitive dissonance. <laughs> OK. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's, you know, it's a film. You know, I mean, it's it's very it's it's very entertaining in some ways just for that you kind of laugh with it and at it at the same time and i hate to use that term so bad that it's good but if any film is like that i mean it's it's this film but it, it's certainly one of my favorite of i think his film is it's always entertaining for those reasons uh apparently it it, it might be released on blu-ray and i don't know whether that's going to make it seem better or whether it's going to make it seem like the this mistakes are even more obvious. I don't know. I, I cannot Certainly wait to see this see. on Blu-ray. I really can't because I, we've for so long needed a very much cleaned up print of this movie. Uh, and we it, just the chance. I mean, just for you, you mentioned that uh, getting a chance to see, you know, the widescreen, a widescreen, beautiful print of Assignment Terror made you reevaluate that movie. It did the same for me. Right. And so there's a part of me that. I, I am under no illusions that lurking underneath the the you know public domain sheen of crap that you can find on YouTube any day of the week are we going to find some lost Daninsky classic. But uh, no. I do wonder what being able to uh, see more detail will bring to this thing. Right. Well, that's it. And the detail can be both positive or negative, once again. Sometimes you see films where the, the sharp definition, you can see, oh, my God, there's part of the set wasn't. <laughs> falling apart <laughs> but you know that, that kind of thing doesn't bother me that might make it even more entertaining I, I'll definitely be buying this Blu-ray when it does come out I don't know who's going to put it out but uh, uh, apparently they're working pretty hard and pretty and, and they're going to try I guess they're going to try to release the one with extended uh, several years um, after I saw the original film in, I think it was like in the early 2000s uh, another print of the or, Okay, no, it was, in, it was in the 1990s, I'm sorry. After I saw it on video, in the, in the mid-1990s, another print appeared, a Swedish source print, which had extra nudity in it, okay? Yeah. And I actually yeah. viewed that print. It was called uh, Wolfman Never Sleeps. That was the title of it. And it had extra nudity in it. It, it was better. It had better letterboxing. It had slightly better picture quality, although most of the prints I have it as this discolored and, once again, doesn't look good. Um, but it does have some extra... Uh, nudity it's it's not any better paced 
Um, once again, you can't really tell on, on any version of this whether whether that first footage in uh, you see in uh, Tibet is was actually shot by Zavalzer from a or another film or stock footage or what the hell it is. And then it goes. And then then but then it keeps going back to footage from Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, The Mark of the Wolfman, yeah, which is actually just ripped off ripped out of the film and put in his inserts. Okay, which I don't know why they did that. I don't know why Zavalzer, the producer, whoever did that, but that really hurt. That really. It's outrageous, you know. <laughs> it's ridiculous, and, it, and I can't imagine that they actually thought that anybody was going to. I mean, that it was going to do anything more than just confuse viewers. Because, right. for, first of all, in those sequences from the the first film from Mark of the Wolfman, I mean, the werewolf being played by Nashi is this vicious, crouching, attacking, right. you know, you know, throat ripping, violent right. thing, and then you right. cut to the stuff this other stuff shot with someone else in the werewolf makeup and they're just strolling down the street and you're like, what in the hell am I watching? Are there supposed to, are we, are there two werewolves? Are we watching one, right. you know, running down this, t- this tunnel and ripping into these people and then another strolling along the street? I mean, it's, it's insane. Well, if you think about it, well, one of the things I said in my review, I, re- I reviewed this for the now defunct, it's sadly defunct European trash cinema magazine. And I reviewed it and. uh, I had it right here. I had it right. It was in a 1996 or 1997 issue, and um, I, I did I did a long review of it. One of the things I said in the review is that there's actually three different look werewolves in this film. There's there's the one from the the first Nashi werewolf film, the Mark yeah. of the Werewolf, which they use stock footage from. And then there's then they use then there's actual makeup of him in the Zabalza film. They actually made him up as a werewolf. And there's several scenes of that. Yeah. And then apparently there's another body double they used where he has different makeup and he has a different look, different clothes, and he's walking straight up. He's not crying. So you got three different werewolves in there, if you think about it. You got well, the body yeah. double, then you got Nash. You got there are scenes with Nashy's in the werewolf makeup, okay? Oh yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, and then there's scenes where they use a body double in there, okay? Um where he's where it's it's a different actor. Apparently, they had a, a, a body double. Then you have the scenes from Frankenstein's Bloody Terror in there. So you have like three different. The werewolf changes his look three different times for different scenes. Now, uh, are, I, I, so you have you got your overview of the film there? Yes, I do. Oh, hey, hey re- read that off because I wanna I wanna see if in your review you touched on one of the one of the to me most fascinating aspects of this when you think about it as part of the uh, the Daninsky series. Go ahead and read that off. That's this should be interesting. Now this is a review I wrote for European Trash Cinema Magazine. Some of you may remember that out there who are listening to this. Uh, this was uh, Craig Ledbetter, a wonderful uh, editor, publisher of it. This was issue number thirteen. And it was uh, published in, and this was published in 1996, I believe. Wolfman Never Sleeps, directed by Jose Maria Zabalza, 1970. And I can read the whole review. It's very long. I don't know if I'm going to read the whole review or not. I'll just start and let's see where we go. Okay. Okay, checking in is a longer, sexier, fully letterbox version of the clumsily panned and scanned U.S. video release, Fury of the Wolfman. This Swedish subtitle rarity is something of a find for fans of Paul Nashi's epic cycle of horror tales, which revolve around the tormented Polish werewolf, Waldemar Daninsky, here called Walterman Daninsky. For some reason in this film, he's called Walterman. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. In the English dub, that's something else I'm hoping about this uh, this Blu-ray that's on the horizon. Right. Is I'm hoping that they have the Spanish track and then subtitle the Spanish track to see how different the right. Spanish version of this is to the English. 
Now, I also have the Spanish version of this film uh, that someone sent me with, with the Spanish track, but it, it's such a poor print that I really can't hear what's going on in the dialogue. So, but uh, so yeah, so, uh, that would be very helpful if they could provide a Spanish track. Okay, let me go back to the review. Fury of the Wolfman has, over the years, taken a lot of flack from critics, Nashi fans, and the, and the actor-writer himself as the, as the Nadir de Lopoint, along with the 1969 assignment Terror, Los Mastros del Terror, of the legendary nearly two-decade-long Werewolf Chronicles. In the comprehensive career-spinning Nashi interview, which appeared in a video special edition, the actor put up several lingering questions about the troubled production history of this ill-fated project. Rather than rehash Nassi's complaint about the mental state of director J.M. Zabalza, the major revelations in his comment were that La Furia del Hombre Obo was basically the La Furia del Hombre Obo was basically an uncompleted film, which Zabalza attempted to say by inserting excerpts from Nassi's first Dinsky opus, La Marca del Hombre Lobo, Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, and that the director of La Marca Enrique Aguilas was also engaged to helm La Furia. He filmed the opening sequences set in Tibet, according to Nashi. When Aguilas was fired, Zabalza took over and disaster ensued. So that's the first few paragraphs that I have some extra information. And that's to the best of my recollection, which Paul Nashi said in the videos review and some earlier in some earlier interviews I have with him that were published in the 90, late 80s and early 90s. Well, I'm curious, uh, before uh, before you go any further, I'm just wondering, um, the things that are in this movie, first of all, uh, I've often described Horror Rises from the Tomb as kind of Nashi's, you know, mad fever dream kitchen sink horror movie right. where it was essentially, you know, let me grab whatever horror, horror movie uh, element I can think of and throw it into this thing and see if it'll all make sense. Right. And, and to a degree... Fury of the Wolfman kind of fits into that same that same template because there are so damn many things in here, and I'm just gonna I, 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 I we're gonna assume people of course have seen this movie, but this is the first first and only time that Nashi pulled one of my favorite stunts in a, a werewolf movie, which is he has the surprise female werewolf at the climax. Right. Right. Yes. And to my mind. Uh, first of all, I think that that is actually one of the elements of the movie that actually works for me. Yes. And it's also, I mean, besides the fact that it's batshit crazy that, that it's his wife who's been oh. resurrected by the mad scientist. Okay. Once again, when, once you start pulling it apart, it just, it's your, your, your term cognitive dissonance probably is best served, best, best served as a, as a kind of blazing neon sign over any discussion of this movie. So the, uh, but I do like that element of it, of course, but there's so many things in this. First of all, the the character who turns out to be uh, the mad scientist's supposedly dead father is walking around this this damn family castle, looking like uh, he's uh, the Phantom of the Opera, right. which is bizarre enough on its own. Yes, and he's the one. He's the one where the at the end they say the, the police inspector, placed by Jose Marcos, says yes. He he was the doctor who killed other doctors, um, who killed other scientists. Now they, I know, and it's and it's a good that he could recognize him. <laughs> but the whole but the whole idea is once again, I think I think Nashi took that idea out of this earlier script that he had written, which never, which was for a film that never got released. The 
you know, lots yeah. no just uh, you know, the, the Knights of the World the Knights of the World whatever was supposed to be called. So I think Nancy recycled recycled that and made it into like kind of a sub story here, okay? As you had said. And um Yeah. You no, know, and that's it. I mean people I don't know how many people actually remember this old video ooze interview and some of these there was like I said, I, I have several really old ones, some are from the late eighties. Where he says different things in different interviews, you know. And of course, he's. I don't. I don't think. I don't think Paul Nashy spoke English that well at all. No, so, it's it's always being translated from Spanish. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So 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 there might be a, a Spanish mistranslation or whatever. But you know, he suggested some of those things. So uh, you know. So once again, we Zabalza at least took footage. We know for a fact picked footage from Nashy's first werewolf film. Put it in there. Maybe footage shot by another director in here. Maybe maybe not. And re- uh-huh. realized from his first film with the, the Tibet sequences, but none of it cuts together. It, it's all, it's all <laughs> no, it doesn't. It, it's all crazy. And um, it, 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 well, I have to ask you this too. Okay, once the movie gets us to the family castle, right, where the mad scientist. We we only thought we knew how mad the mad scientist character was, played by Perla Crystal. Right. But the uh, when we get there, we're introduced to just. The, this this is where the movie, if it were ever on the rails, this was t- this was a guarantee that it was going to go off the rails because what we have here is an entire sub basement of this castle filled with her screw ups, her right. her her rejected mis- mistakes, the the right. failed experiments essentially, and <laughs> you have you got this. It's just rooms full of people who. We, I can't figure out why they stick around. Right. Uh, and then you've got uh, bizarre people who have been like merged with with uh, living plants. Right, right. It it's nuts. And like like I say, this is a whole section of the movie that I can't wait for a better looking print of this movie to exist so that I can actually finally see some detail in some of this stuff. But still, this is kitchen sink horror filmmaking where it's not enough to have. The, the mad scientist. We've also got to have her failed experiments, and we've got to have the failed experiments be, uh, uh, you know, like what two, almost two dozen people who are just, uh, as far as I can tell, conducting an on again, off again orgy in the basement. Right. They, they um, look like they, some of them look like hippies to me. Like they they have like longer hair. They're they're, they're playing rock music at one point or bongos. So they they they, yeah. they, they appear like I, I call them. I remember I said uh, it says it says Nashi's own straight face. This is from my review. Straight-paced portrayal of werewolf angst, radio-controlled hippie zombie mutants, luscious Amazon lab assistants Veronica Rujan, and the climactic husband-wife male-female werewolf battle all adds up to Nashi's deliriously overstuffed script jam-packed with bloody action and goofy entertainment potential. Now that's that's pretty much my review. Nutshell <laughs> of it. That yeah, it, and it, that's a pretty de- that's a pretty decent review. I could agree with that. Yeah. I go into a lot of detail. I don't want to bore people for reading the whole thing, but you know, it's it's uh, you can write a whole book on this one, probably. What what somebody if somebody can verify what actually happened and what went wrong with the film, I, but to probably everybody's probably dead. I think that you know Paul Nash passed away and uh, unfortunately, and uh, but he did make a lot of statements about this film and uh, which are interesting statements in some old interviews. You might want to look some of those up to verify yourself. But uh, oh yeah, but well, I mean, I know he was always. Um, with a lot, I think it was a, a point of of pain for for Nashi uh, later in his life when he realized that for a lot of his American fans, the film that they 
were probably introduced to his work from was this movie because right. it was such a staple of uh, both uh, right. late night television viewings and and then of course because it kind of fell into a weird public domain you know area for video anybody who wanted to put it out on video would put it out on video which is why you could probably buy a DVD of it for a damn dollar right. I know I, I know you could there in the early 2000s and so I, I know it it bothered him considerably that for a lot of people that was their introduction to Dedinsky and it, it could just you could just see why it would frustrate him because you know it's easily the least especially in the that first uh, well I mean all the way up through 83 I mean it's, it's easily easily the one that is least representative of anything that he wanted to accomplish right yeah exactly I think you're right about that and uh, once again I, I I first saw I first saw it on a on, because this, do you remember when this was out on VHS? When Fear the Wolf was out on VHS in the eighties? Do you remember that or in the nineties? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Is that how you first saw it on VHS? I first saw, I first saw it completely mm-hmm. uh, on a cheap. Oh man, a cheap. Probably, I can't remember. If it was a VHS. It was in the nineties. A cheap either VHS or a cheap DVD. Now I can't remember. I first saw it on a cheap VHS dupe. Somebody sent me. And it looked uh-huh. absolutely abysmal. And then I saw it. And then I saw it. And then it was on one of those fifty movie pack. It's on one of those fifty movie pack sets, like Nightmare World or whatever. I have it. Yeah. I have it on DVD. At that it looks terrible. Then I then it was on Alpha DVD as a standalone, which is which is like a two ninety nine I purchased. And then I've got three or four other DVDs, all cheap labels. I've, I've got about a half a dozen DVDs of it. Okay, all pretty much in pretty poor condition. So I've never seen it looking good, and I've always seen it. Um, and even the the one the uh, Wolfman Never Sleeps, I've uh, I've got some DVD hours of that, but it doesn't really look that much better. Okay, so yeah, when, when they do this Blu-ray, I'm going to be really anxious to see how, see how the damn thing looks. And that's the frustrating thing as a fan of of his work, and especially of the of his werewolf movies, is there are so many. It is it, overstuffed is a good is a good description of the the film itself and the screenplay too, which is there's there's almost too many ideas being shoved into what you know needs to be a ninety minute movie, right. and the thing is you can see how especially with when you look at something like Horror Rises from the Tomb, it's overstuffed as well, but it works. Right, and the difference is you know the difference is Carlos Allred, right. who's a freaking director who knew how to line things up and do them correctly. Right. And uh, you know it that it takes a steady hand and it takes someone with some real attention to detail to put that much stuff on the screen and not have it feel like it's just this you know poorly put together cocktail that's going to make you throw up. Uh, that was very if, if, very first werewolf film, the mark the mark of the wolf man. Uh, it was is very well directed by Enrique Aguilas, Henry Egan, which called on his American Prince and. Yeah. That's a very well directed film. That director had experience in some thrillers, and he was he was a very good director. It's, it's a very well done film. It's a very solid film. Uh, then, if you think about it, what, what happened after that? Then this apparent disaster with this uh, Spanish French co production, which we're talking about, Las Noches del Hombre Lobo, The Knights of the Werewolf, um, yeah. directed, and then not being not being finished, disappearing, and then we haven't even talked about this. The the, the third one was. Um, Assignment Terror. They had three different directors. I know it's it's a it, it's a mess of a film as well. Yeah, I mean that started with Hugo Freganese. Uh, I'm not sure whether he was Argentinian or whatever, but he started it out. He was fired or quit, 
And then uh, it was taken over by uh, Tullio Demicelli, who is an Argentinian director who directed spaghetti westerns. And uh, he, and then then at the end, uh, Antonio Isassi came in, very famous, uh, successful director, and, and finished it off. He finished it off and edited it into something, edited into a, a, a saleable version. And uh-huh. that that's that final version is what they put on the DVD, or the Blu-ray, and it looks great. It's very a very entertaining film, even though it's a mess. It's it is a mess, it's, but they, it's fine. They put it together in a way that lo- it looks good and is very watchable. So uh, we're still to see a watchable version of uh, Fury, but hopefully that's with the DVD. It'll give us a watchable version of this. <laughs> of this. Well, well, earlier you said that you weren't sure who was putting it out. I do believe that it's Scorpion releasing the same people who put out the Blu-ray of Assignment Terror and uh, The Mummy's Revenge. Right. So with any luck. I mean, having, you know, the, the quality level has been set really high. With any luck, we will finally have a version of Fury of the Wolfman that will allow us to put the put the final stamp on a, on, a, on opinions about the movie one way or the other without having to make sidelong glances at the fact that we're not really able to see the movie under the best circumstances. That's going to change, hopefully. Yes. Yeah, I think it will. That, that, that's a very good company. I was just very impressed with what they did with, the, the you know, the... Revenge of the Mummy, The Mummy's Revenge, and uh, once again, Assignment Terror. They just did really, really good work with those. I'll definitely buy the Fury. Uh, I hope they do more. Yeah, I mean, uh, Werewolf Shadow. Oh, me too, yes. Werewolf Shadow, the film that started the Spanish horror boom. Is, is there a high-definition version of that that's been released anywhere? Is that, I'd like to see a high I think there. I think there's a version that was released in, I want to say Germany, possibly. I think in Germany, but that's it, and it's apparently not English friendly. So, and then there's the the one with um, the one main seventy three by Carlos Sauber, Curse of the Werewolf. What's not Curse of the Werewolf? I mean, uh, Curse of the Devil. Curse of the Devil. I'm sorry, Curse of the Devil. Yeah, yeah, Curse of the Devil hasn't gotten any kind of Blu-ray release, and neither has uh, Doctor Jekyll and the Wolfman. And oh, by the way, Curse of the Werewolf, the 1960 Terrence Fisher film, is coming out on Blu-ray in the U.S. from I believe. In, a few months, so that's what I mean. Yes, yes, uh, that's uh, the 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 Oliver Reed, the one with Oliver Reed. Right. Such a such a great movie, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, imagery and some of the ideas that uh, you can see in, in uh, Curse the Werewolf, the Hammer film. Definitely something that got got incorporated into the Daninsky film series as things went. Now that was the I, I saw that theatrically when it was released in sixty or sixty one in the U.S. I was like eight or nine years old. I saw it theatrically at a, a big Lowe's theater downtown where I live, and boy, that film blew me away. I was just a young kid, so I was with some friends on a Saturday afternoon. That never forgot that film, and uh, I'll definitely get that just as kind of a nostalgia thing. It's a, it's a, it's a really a great film. It really is a great movie. But a lot of people have a complaint with that with that Hammer film that the werewolf doesn't show up until well past the halfway mark, and it's like, yeah, but the whole movie's really great regardless right. of whether the werewolf's on screen. Yeah, well, they go into a lot of character and period atmosphere, which is really well done. I thought, you know, it's just a really well written. And yeah, Terrence Fisher was a really great director, I think. And uh, interestingly enough, Fisher uh, came to a horror festival in Spain in the early seventies and, and saw Nashi's hunchback of the morgue and went over and greeted him. I think Peter Cushing was there and said he wanted to make a film with him. He was so impressed by Nash's hunchback. I could see Terrence Fisher making a kind of a... <laughs> oh, can, yeah, can you imagine? Would that... Uh, yeah, uh, Nashie's told that story before and has been verified by other people. Can you imagine what it would have been? But, of course, unfortunately, 
I mean, here's the thing, though, man. Fisher, he still had it in this. He still had his mojo in the right. '70s. I one of my favorite of his movies in the Frankenstein series is Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, the last yeah. one he made, and it's just so stinking good. And I just imagine that man pairing up to direct uh, a, a Paul Nashy script. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always Dream. those, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Oh, it would have been amazing. Now, I also saw. Uh, Frankenstein, the Master from Hell, theatrically. He had a drive-in, in, I believe it was 1974, with um, Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter. Great double bill. There is a double bill, and, yeah. But I believe it was a cut version. It's been very hard to see that film, uh, Frankenstein, the Master from Hell, uncut version. But I believe the Blu-ray will be the full version. Very hard to see. The un- they, they cut some extreme, bizarre violence out of it. And um, it, it's an excellent film. Yeah, Interestingly yeah. enough. Fisher, that was Fisher's last film. I think it was released in 72 or 73. He lived till 1980 and couldn't get another directing job. He wanted to direct. I know. And no, they, they Hammer stupidly wouldn't hire him. And um, Hammer went out. Well, he, he had some health problems, too. Yes. So. Yeah, I, I believe he did. But it's, I, I would still rather see a, a film directed by a man with health problems. And I think he might have been able to say, <laughs> Hammer should have just kept on doing what they were doing. But. The times are changing, and yeah, he had health problems. And, uh, but uh, yeah, the bottom the bottom kind of dropped out for Hammer there by the by about seventy four seventy five, sadly. So yeah, but I'm, I'm glad I got to see some of these films theatrically back in the day, and I'm glad they're coming out of Blu Ray. I'm glad that the film we're talking about, Fury of the Wolfman, that's going to be a must have for me. Oh, most assuredly. Just real quick before we finish up, uh, which what's your favorite uh, of the Daninsky werewolf movies? Which one is your actual favorite? Right. My actual favorite, I, I think after seeing the Blu-ray of uh, Werewolf in the Yeti, uh, that's probably my favorite. That's just got so much in there. The Blu-ray, it, it, it looks better than it's ever looked. It's got some popping colors in it. It looks great. I mean that film has got the werewolf, it's got the yeti, although the yeti's kind of funny at the end. It's got it's yeah. got like cannibal women in it. It's got like uh, torture. <laughs> it's got like uh, all kinds of different. Things. Oh, it's got that awesome that awesome fight between uh, Daninsky and Saka Khan. Right, right. It's got it's got like uh, the it's got like the yeah Saka Khan's got Victor Israel's in it. It's got yep. uh, Once again, bandits uh, torture people hideously to death. It's just a great old fashioned entertainment film. Very well done. That's probably my favorite one. I, I watch it. I, I can just watch it. Put that on any time and watch. I like that one, and I, I also like the one the the, the werewolf and um, Doctor Jekyll and the Wolfman or whatever the title is supposed to be of it. I mean, oh yeah, like, Doctor Jekyll and the Wolfman. I, I, I like, I like I monster rallies. Now that's got two different. He becomes like the Wolfman, then he becomes Doctor Mister Hyde. So that's a good one too. I like to see that come out. Oh God! I hope that one. I hope that one comes out on Blu-ray soon. It's such a great movie. And then, of course, it'd be nice to have his first werewolf film out on Blu-ray. I don't know if that's our, I guess maybe that's out on Blu-ray in Europe, but not here. So I like to see that on Blu-ray. The Mark of the Wolf. If I had to, if I had to gamble, and this isn't from any kind of inside knowledge or anything of that nature, I would say that we're probably going to see Mark of the Wolfman come out on Blu-ray before we'll see any of the others because, right. Right. because of that, uh, that push, uh, a couple of years ago. Well, recently actually to, to, th- there were screenings of it in 3d. So right. that just seems to me that that's, that's right. evidence of attention being paid to that movie in a way that will probably get it out on Blu-ray sooner than some of the others. Right. And, and that would be, that, 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 that would be good. I mean, no. and of course, um, I still haven't seen it yet. It's just been released. Uh, the Beast and the Magic Sword. I mean, that's that. I'm sure you've seen it. You've done the 
commentary for it, so I I'm, can't wait to see it. <laughs> I'm incredibly pleased that that movie is out because that's the, that's one of the ones that's been just almost impossible for yes. people to see. Yes, I know. And it's and it, it's such it's such a good production. I'm just so glad people can finally watch it. Yes, and I look forward to when that finally gets uh, wide release. <laughs> well, it's coming. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Monell, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for coming on the NashiCast. Okay, thank you for having me. You're a strange man, and we love you. <laughs> but let's let's, let's yeah, address the monster. Is, yes, in the room. yes, yes. The fact that in the Phil Hardy yeah. horror science horror uh, encyclopedia, yeah. that he uh, there's an actual review written by yeah. somebody of a non-existent Valdemar yeah. Nansky film, the the legendary Night of the Wolfman. Yeah, that's nuts. I know, I know. It is well. It's the yeah, and I've I've, I've mentioned many times on the show how much I, I love. That's my single favorite reference book ever. But I haven't. It was the book that that helped me connect the dots about Paul Nashi, you know, of all these different films, some of which I had, a few of which I had caught on TV, but kind of really started to put together, wow, how important this guy was and start to hunt these films down. But having said that, I've not looked at the book or referenced it in years and certainly not since we started really getting heavily, since I really yeah. started understanding the whole Nashi filmography. And so, yeah, that, I did not realize that it actually does mention that film. But the crazy thing to me, out of all of it, I think you can... Explain all of it away except for that one line about it being like a Jess Franco film. That sounds like a a really personal kind of firsthand experience kind of thing. Now, yeah, I think yeah. maybe what it was was just somebody who was just maybe when they first thought of Spanish horror or just horror and European horror thinks Franco and they see the and they somehow saw a synopsis somewhere that mentioned it being a scientist in it and maybe just thought of some of Franco's maybe, weird horror sci-fi matches. Maybe they thought about Diabolical Doctors Evil. Maybe, Doctor but it's still a really strange personal thing. Because it involves certain, because the, yeah. the descriptions given get, has, a, has something about surgery. Yeah, it's just strange. To, somebody make a comment about that, about something they, they didn't see. Yeah. Then you start, that really kind of makes you like think, God, you know, did they well, see this somewhere? All yeah. the detail, all those yeah, names. Yeah, I know. All those names, all those names the that direct, are, The director's name, the actor, the, yeah. the various actors, and it's like, <laughs> you can try to track those names down and you're not going to get anywhere. It's yeah. very strange. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great bit of uh, detective work there, Robert. That really was an interesting, interesting kickoff to that whole conversation there. And and then and then to kind of and then to kind of tie it into how some of those ideas seem to have spilled over into this mad, it, mad film. That we're Fury of the Wolf Man, it's insane. Uh-huh. But, but yeah, that's something I'd not I'd not considered. I mean, we mm-hmm. we you know when you read uh, Nash's autobiography, this definitely. Uh, true, he, he he reworked and reused ideas mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's no big surprise that you know the the Yeti stuff pops up in Fury of the Wolfman before mm-hmm. it gets refined mm-hmm. a few years later and turned into you know Night of the Howling Beast or Night mm-hmm. of the Yeti, whatever mm-hmm. title you want to go by. So yeah. that, mm-hmm. that that makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. and the 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 this is the only time you get Nashy playing a Daninsky character. Well, until unless you call unless you count uh, Lycanthropo. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Where Daninsky's married. Yeah, yeah. But with Lycanthropo, you're talking about the the oddness of having this character become a, a lycanthrope when he's in middle age, mm-hmm. which is a whole different field of mm-hmm. uh, of conversation. But mm-hmm. 
Fear of the Wolfman is I got I got to admit when he talked when he said he wanted to talk about Fear of the Wolfman I was like, it's just like oh shit tell me he's not going to defend this movie and it's like no he thinks no, it's as yeah. insane as we do yeah. <laughs> because it is but, insane but as you guys both pointed out it really is probably a lot of people's introduction into Nashi because of its availability yeah. you know uh, yeah. because of uh, all the PD releases and the fact you know that it's for better or worse that's probably a lot of people's you know first first view- viewing of El, El Hombre Lobo so yeah. <laughs> thank, thank God for most people it wouldn't, wasn't their last, or at least I hope. Yeah, we hope. Yeah, I hope. Last. Yeah. Holy crap! Holy. Yeah, or or hopefully the rest of them weren't disappointing because they weren't as off the wall. Like if they didn't see that and just like, oh my gosh, if they're all this insane, I can't wait to see the rest of them. <laughs> and then the rest of them not be as insane. <laughs> is that, the, the thing is, there's just so many things in Fear of the Wolfman. And Mr. Monell and I talked about it. Yeah. It, it, it. There becomes this question as you watch that movie. No matter how much you know, mm-hmm. how many other Daninsky films you've seen. Mm-hmm. Watching that movie, it is so herky jerky back mm. and forth with the mm. the strolling down the street pimp version yeah, of, the, then, of the werewolf yeah. and, and the snarling beast creature know, all cut in from the previous yeah. film. Yeah, you're right. That does the film no favors by throwing in all this from a better film of, of better footage of the Wolfman. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <This laughs> it looks like he almost makes you feel like he's exhausted himself from Rachel much. He's just too tired. That's why he's just strolling he's down. He's just like, I'm just too tired to be beast right now. <laughs> Looking around for a pub to go get a beer. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just want to say that I, I still, as as much as this film is nowhere near the top of my favorite Nashy film, <laughs> I, I I often come back to feeling that Pearl of Crystal just maybe still be actually my favorite Nashy villainess. You know, she's just, kind of incredible. Yeah. She is. I mean, just you know, how many? Let me let me count the ways that I love her in this film. You know, one. You know, <laughs> let's just start from ground zero. Wearing shades at her class. You know, class she teaches during the day. You know, teaches her 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 her, her class and and wears sunglasses the, the whole time. And the way that she just sort of, uh, I love the way she casually says to anybody what you know you know oh i'm just working on my experiments to control human minds <laughs> and they're and they're always like oh that's great professor go on with the good <laughs> nobody bats really? an eye with you <laughs> um you know this weird kind of dominatrix odd relationship she has with her female assistant there you know well, with, with two of her females one is one is she's clearly dominating yeah and the other who seems so completely on board she's willing to threaten the yeah. other one I mean, yeah um you know the fact she's growing some sort of human things in a garden you know we've talked yeah. about and uh and the fact she has hippie parties going on hippie orgies going on in her basement all apparently 24 7 uh you know how can you know how can you not love this this villainous and it made me think actually you know sometime as we're coming up with all these different kind of ideas to do for Nashi episodes, we ought to we ought to take an episode sometime where we maybe talk about our favorite Nashi villainesses and our favorite Nashi heroines. You know, it might be a oh, fun might a be a fun idea. subject yeah, for right. an episode. Oh, maybe. that'd be cool. You're right. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do, about Pearl of Crystal, I, I I have to say, I mean, we've we've seen her in, se- in several films, and is and it, the one that I forget about until I'm forcibly reminded is she was white fawn and white Comanche. She sure was. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> you know, if you can hold your own with Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> surely you've got with two Shatners. Not many people can oh, say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> double, double Shatner. Double Shatner. It's, it's the double mint <laughs> Shatner of, of, of spaghetti Westerns. <laughs> I just get twice weird. the toupee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the study of Shatner's toupee comes back around. Yeah. Hello, hello, fake hair. How are you? Yeah, as we've studied Nashi's toupee, uh, many, yeah, many yeah, times. yeah. The hair piece, the hair, a good hair piece is a wonderful thing. <laughs> it but, is. It uh, is. A bad hair piece is something to talk about. <laughs> but one more thing I'll say about uh, the that this this film because 
for all of its crazy ideas, it throws some some interesting ones there too. If you depending yeah. on how far you want to go with them, and I, I believe I brought this up when we actually did our first Nashi cast episode on the film itself. Is that would be I, uh, episode number thirteen. That's going back a ways. Yes, back a ways. Um, that if you wanted to read it this way, you can you you I think you can read it as as that she actually causes his transformation. You know, I kind of brought that up the last time. It's like yeah, because yeah. he keeps having these flashbacks with being in Tibet. Supposedly got you know bitten, got cursed there, but we don't really you know. She also at the same time is 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 using these mind controls. She's experimenting these right, mind control, right. and so there's the there is the hint that possibly she psychologically she uses sci- her experiments to cause his transformation, or to or know? to at least like mm. you know instigated it. Yeah, to, yeah. Know, yeah. So yeah. it's yeah, it's never really, but but it's just one well, of the things you can kind I mean, of play she, with. She yeah. certainly <laughs> revives his dead wife, and suddenly, yeah. suddenly we have a female werewolf. as a werewolf. Yeah. So she has that ability to. So yeah, I just think like, well, that's interesting because if that if that is the case, then you could say it's the one. El Hombre Lobo film where his transform where his his lycanthropy is caused by science, not by a curse or by you know, at least at least partially as a baby. Yeah, yeah, right. The, least, the, the yeah. hint is definitely there, yeah, and of yeah. course, that's certainly definitely not a direction that he took the the future Donetsky story no, not at, at all. all. It's no. almost it's always a supernatural mm-hmm. thing yeah, and not yeah. tied in with science at all. Mm-hmm. Which is of course probably why you know from here on out, no Donetsky character. <laughs> No matter how varied the characters were, mm-hmm. no Daninsky character was ever once again a, a an academic or a right. scientist of any type like mm-hmm. he is here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that I, I wonder now because the production of this movie, A Fury of the Wolfman, it left such a bad taste in his mouth. Mm-hmm. I wonder if because of that, that's mm-hmm. just an idea. I, I wonder if the idea he decided wasn't exactly what he wanted mm-hmm. wanted to do, mm-hmm. or if he just decided that's an idea that's just tainted now by yeah. this freaking movie. <laughs> Right. I, I I don't know. That's yeah. that would be an inter- yeah. that would be another one of those questions that if I ever got to meet him, it'd be one of those questions I've never heard anybody put to him that right. I would love to have been able to ask. Yeah. But those chances mm. are long gone yes. now. Sadly, yes. yeah, I know. All right, folks. Um, once again, we want to thank Mister Monel and Miss Ellinger for coming on to the show and to giving to giving us their time and their thoughts about these two very different. Valdemar Daninsky films. Yeah. Uh, in the future, I want to have uh, both of them back on the show and uh-huh. other people on the show again uh, to talk about not just the Daninsky films necessarily. I want to stretch out, talk about uh, Mummy's Revenge, Horror Rises mm-hmm. from the Tomb, mm-hmm. uh, any other of Nash's horror films or even mm-hmm. any of his other non-horror films that uh, guests would like to talk about. But it was I thought it was great to kind of get six people Four last time and two this time. Yeah. Six people to talk about different uh, oh, Nashi been awesome. films. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of get to everything from uh, Adrian, who never sat down and watched one until I yeah. p- until I pushed him yeah. to, yeah. all the way to Mr. Monell, who's been looking at these things for you know forty yeah. some odd years and writing about them and, and almost that almost that length of time. That is what I wanted to get is that that range of experience, that range of opinion about mm. these things and what what can be brought to it by divergent ideas, divergent visions of this stuff. And I think we're off to a yeah. pretty good 2020 yeah. start. Re- so. Regardless of lockdowns and mm-hmm. fucking damn viruses yeah. and all this mm-hmm. damn shit that's mm-hmm. making life so freaking hellish. <sighs> yeah, it's, and, and and if somebody's listening to this 20 years from now, and I, say, I guess we should say we're talking about the coronavirus. That, you know, we the thing that it, wiped uh, out the United y- States. Yes, exactly. Because if they just listen in the years from now and they hear us talking about lockdown, they're thinking, like, what these guys do? And they, they got, like, they got like you know, this wrist, you know, got, like, the, yeah, know. the, the, the trackers on. We can't leave the leave the house for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, no, 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 folks. We're living yeah. through a pandemic. And we, it, are. Uh, we are. We are. 
it's not bad yet, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it is it is irritating to say the least. Yes, it is, <laughs> folks. I tell you what, we're going to take another break, and then we're going to come back, and then we're going to finally work mm. our way through a Lots backlog of, mail. Mm. of mail, email. Mail, mail. Oh boy, do we have a lot of emails to work our way through. So, hang on, we'll come right back, and we'll go through these emails. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Daikaiju Attack from award winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Now available in all ebook formats on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Find more info at daikaijuattack.com sdsullivan.com and the Daikaiju Attack Group on Facebook. Join the action today. Alright folks, time to dive back into the mailbag and we're going to try to this year keep up with the emails as they come in. Uh, We've been kind of bad about that because we uh, will sometimes respond to the emails and Mm. then forget Mm-hmm. To, to cover them on the mm-hmm. show itself. So we do have a bit of a backlog here for that. We apologize, but hey, there's some really interesting ideas and questions that get brought up in these, these emails, and I think it's a very good idea to share with everybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's start with... Oh, wait a minute. Before we do that, though, we, yes. wanted, to get, well, we wanted to get one correction out of the way yes. first. Yes. On our uh, 10th anniversary episode, uh, we had the writer Steve Sullivan join us on the show and uh, talk about Nashi And... Um, I made a mention on there of, of uh, him being the creator of the terrific horror role-playing game Chill, uh, how I'd met him and didn't realize that I'd always enjoyed that game and didn't realize who he was till after. You know, I mean, I knew he was, you know, we had a great time hanging out at G-Fest, and then I, I later found out, oh, he's the creator of Chill. And, you know, so anyway, but he, Steve has asked us to make a correction to that, uh, that uh, he's not just the only creator of Chill. That he's actually created it along with several other people. I think he's feeling a little bad because apparently there was a... Um, he says it's his fault that there's... Uh, I think his bio somewhere has, has gotten out there where instead of saying co-creator, it just said creator, and he's working on correcting that, but it's sort of been circulated out there, and he's he's uh, regretting that now, and so he's asked us to make the correction here on the air that he, yeah. is, he is just one of several creators of that excellent uh, role-playing game. Um, he says he says it will be corrected on his upcoming print version of his story, Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, uh, which I have read in the serialized form, and it is very much fun. You'll really enjoy it. The print version's coming out with a cover by Mark Maddox. And, yes. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, by all means, check that out. And so let it be here and forever known that Steve Sullivan <laughs> was just one creator of Chill. And if you ever get a chance to play Chill, do so. And like I said, I... He's still probably the only creator of Chill that I will meet, and uh, you know that I know. So uh, is Chill still in print? I, you know, I'm guessing not, but oh, I don't know. Maybe it is. It's, it's, it, may, it could be, well, be. But uh, but as again, I have a first edition or first you know edition of the game, a boxed set of the of the game. So I do I do intend to try and have Steve sign that for me someday. And if he wants to get all those other co-creators to sign it, he can. But he's going to have to track them down because I don't know any of them. 
So Chill came out in 1984, but yeah. in the past few years, there have been uh, new additions and, and kind of additions to it. That's, that's good to know. That's pretty cool. Chill yeah. still lives, and mm-hmm. I've still never played it. So yeah. I to, it was fun. It was a fun, uh, fun game. Very well done, uh, and definitely if you're into classic horror, I mean, it was a great idea. It was you know, it was uh, taking the classic horror monsters, making a role playing game, and uh, yeah, it was very well, very well created, very well crafted. So I'm glad to know that it's still circulating out there. That's good. Well, of course, what's funny for me right now is that uh, Stephen Sullivan. Uh, Author Stephen D. Sullivan has been mm. diving headlong into the Valdemar Daninsky and other Nashy films here mm-hmm, lately. Mm-hmm. He's always been a fan, but uh, mm-hmm. he's been racing through them and trying to watch them in some kind of uh, chronological order. And it's been kind of fun uh, communicating with him back and forth <laughs> as he as he went through this project because yeah. I understand the enthusiasm. I mean, after all, we do a podcast about Paul Nashy. It's not that hard yeah. to figure out. But, uh, all right, well let's uh, let's get to yeah, these emails. You, you guys obviously got really tired of hearing us whining about not getting any mail because you. you <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. These these are all the way back to December, so yeah, let's uh, yeah. let's start here. Okay. This is from uh, Steve Bowen from uh, Durham, North Carolina. He says, we've actually got two from him, so let me start off here. And he says, uh, Rod and Troy, I just wanted to tell you that I really enjoy your podcasts and movie commentaries. Uh, you're a very discerning person, Steve. Uh, Steve, I just want to mm-hmm. mm-hmm. thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, he, he's got more to say. Hold on. A man of taste and hopefully wealth, too. So. <laughs> He says, I've listened to a few of your Nashy Cast and Bloody Pit episodes over the past couple years, and over the past three weeks, I've even binge-listened daily. Mm-hmm. Your podcast is both informative and funny. In fact, a little too funny. Mm-hmm. Last week at work, I listened to the podcast when you were jokingly mentioning your idea for a sitcom called My Nazi Dad. <laughs> <laughs> he says, was that the Dr. Jekyll versus the Werewolf episode? Maybe I don't, I don't. I don't remember, I don't remember that. I know. I said that. I was just like, I don't. I don't. It's, it's funny. I don't know where that comes from. I don't remember saying. You, you got to understand these. these yeah, this is spur of the moment jokes. Yeah. They're very off the cuff, and, and yeah. once a couple of years have gone by, trust me, we we can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> he said, "I had my earbuds on and laughed out loud at that ludicrous TV series title." I know my coworkers are still wondering what was so funny. I still laugh at that. <laughs> He says, uh, I own about two dozen Nashy Blu-rays and enjoy watching them and then listening to your accompanying podcasts. I found that I also enjoy your podcast about films I've never seen. I know a podcast is good when I listen for two hours to a couple of guys talking about a movie I may never get a chance to watch. I know you've already done episodes on almost every popular Nashy film, but since some of those episodes are a few years old, have you considered doing episodes with many reviews of new Blu-rays as they are released? Maybe an annual Nashy Buyer's Guide episode for Blu-rays, books, etc.? It's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, I think that I almost feel like we did a couple of episodes when we the first when have. the first couple yeah. ones hit there, like uh, yeah, that we kind of did a little re- revisit since it was maybe I almost feel like we did a kind of Dracula's Great Love one, and then we did maybe a Crimson yeah, one or something. I think, but I may but totally be the moving. sense I'm getting from him. I, I kind of like the idea. The more I think about it, which is the idea of like taking like one Blu-ray an episode, mm-hmm. regardless, I mean, just having a little segment in whatever that episode is oh, to, I see talk, to, yeah, to, right. to kind of delve into the details of that Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, it's not no. a bad idea. No, it isn't. No, no. We could, uh, we could praise ourselves. We, we could. We could like, man, could, this audio company. We could talk about how awesome we are. I want to meet these guys, man. They're awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could blow smoke up our own asses. And, <laughs> there you go. And, I like and, that it, idea. It would require a new yoga position called... <laughs> Forward-facing dipshit, or I don't know. Uh, he says, uh, please keep uh, keep the podcasts and commentaries coming. Uh, Steve, Mr. Bowen, uh, thank you very much for yeah. your comments. And hard on the heels of that, he sent another email. I want to go ahead and jump right into that one. He says, uh, Rod and Troy, I just listened to your podcast and Blu-ray commentary on Inquisition. 
You mentioned that you could find no reference to any omens concerning the sighting of an owl. Yeah, and I did hunt like a son bitch back mm-hmm. before, back mm-hmm. when we did that commentary track. Uh, he says, being Southern boys like me, I'm surprised you weren't aware of the 1967 Season 7 episode of the Andy Griffith Show called The Darling Fortune. In that episode, the darlings see an owl in the daytime, which means you'll marry the next woman you see. Helen Crump walks by and is not happy to hear that she must marry one of the darling boys. Andy discovers that seeing a second owl in the daytime is a counter omen and is considered bad luck. So he and Goober (laughs) climb a tree and dangle a stuffed owl, which scares off the darling family. Now, I will say, I do remember that episode because I spent way too many hours of my college years Rewatching episodes of the Andy Griffith Show, trying to deal with the pain of being in college. Yeah, yeah. and hangovers, obviously. <laughs> well, um, you know, it, I, he's talking about that I, about the owls thing, and I'm kind of kicking myself for you know, I, and I've been a Manly Wade Wellman fan for years, you know, and and uh, he had a whole collection or a story I know that, and also one of his. I've got a collection of his stories. It's called Owls Hoot in the Daytime, is the name of it, you know, and I never. Oh, even, yeah, really? Okay. And of course, those are all Southern based. Horror tales, and you this know, so it's just yeah, and it just never even occurred to me when we were making the show, obviously, uh, that there was you know that there's the folklore <laughs> built in right there. So, well, speaking of Manly Wade Wellman, I just finally got around to watching that um, Legend of Hillbilly John. I've film. still never seen that. How is that? You know, it's very low budget. Yeah, and I knew they kind of made it more of like I think at the time it came out, I think he's kind of more of a hippie folk singer kind of version kind of, of Silver still, John. It's and, still yeah. kind of set. In the, it still has the feel of being set in the proper time. Well, mm-hmm. the Hillbilly John stories kind of range all over a couple of several right. decades. Yeah, but it does feel very twenties, thirties. Okay, it, it feel it's mm-hmm. it feels as if it's taking place between the world wars. Let's okay, put it that way. Okay, and um, it it its reach exceeds its grasp. Yeah. Uh, and it it tries to do some things that it was probably better off not trying to do. Didn't have the budget but it's, for it. It's it's in other words, it's it's a classic six out of ten kind of movie. Yeah, I don't, I've always it, meant to see it. I it's it's not great, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I'm glad they made a stab at it because it's mm-hmm. it's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. And I don't know that we'll ever see uh, a manly weight, you know, a, a Silver John story ever. You know, I would love to. It would be it again. would be hard to. It would be really difficult to pull that off in in such a way. I mean, I think you could do it. It would not the kind of thing many people would you know go yeah, see. Yeah. But I think you could do a version if you got. Might you be know, something that could be done for cable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I could mm-hmm, see that. Mm-hmm, maybe yeah. maybe yeah, an adaptation. Too, yeah, yeah. Maybe an adaptation of a couple three of the stories done mm-hmm. as an anthology or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, at any rate, um, boy, did we range off there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he he asks, is this a solid factual reference to a real omen? He says, nope, but if you're from the South, the Andy Griffith show is close enough. <laughs> and he's probably right. He did, he did. But it was Manly full Wade of portends and omens. <laughs> yeah. and but if Manly Wade Wellman was writing stories yeah. about you know owls in the daytime, I yeah. mean, that does seem to be, there seems to be something That man knew his folklore, so yeah, exactly. Yeah, he certainly knew his folklore, and he definitely was a Southern, Southern feller, so... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he says it's a long shot, but imagine Paul Nashie watching a rerun of Andy Griffith's show <laughs> in Spain with bad Spanish dubbing, no less, and getting the idea for the owl. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Looking forward to the next podcast, Stephen or Steve Bowen. I'm just uh, picturing. Yeah, maybe. I'm just picturing Barney like locking up Otis, you know, in the cell, and then. <laughs> And then in the other cell, or they only had the one cell. Back in the cell, sitting there too is 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 Valdemar Daninsky, you know, back there where they just, you know, <laughs> shivering, <laughs> baby, terrified, shivering, looking at the yeah, uh, yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> the side roads. This yes. uh, this this takes us down. This is very strange. 
All right. So I have one from our friend Don Cunningham. Okay. He says, listening to your podcast at the office, and must say I nearly teared up at the beginning as you two, he's talking about the 10th anniversary episode, ah. as you two go into the time that the podcast came about, just after the death of Senor Molina. So I think his fans all felt the same in that there was hope to meet the legend or see another grand piece of cinema come forth before that time. Even though it wasn't to be, your show seemed to be the link needed. It says, now a fan of the show that never watched a Paul Nashy movie, how the hell did they even find the show? <laughs> it says, Adrian, I don't know. Yes, he says, that should say something about how well you two entertain. Uh, yeah, we were amazed that people found us too. Believe me, <laughs> <laughs> truly. We all, we like I said, we've like we've said many times. We we figured we might just be talking into a microphone and nobody would ever yeah. listen to us. Yeah, but somehow somehow Adrian found us. He says uh, Don says Adrian was a pleasure to listen to as a newcomer to a Nashi lycanthropy film. Now the story of the Egyptologist fighting werewolves in the tombs would be a great comic book. <laughs> oh, he's yeah. right. That idea that Adrian yeah, throws yeah, that, about that, just that whole this idea. whole yeah. sidetrack reference that it gives to Nashi's Egyptian adventures. We want to see that. We want to see it. So he says, uh, new quote stated that should be utilized for your tagline, quote, whether we can find a legal copy or not, unquote. <laughs> that should be our motto. Yeah, that is a great, <laughs> that should be our tagline. I like that. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, for the entire 10-year run of this yeah. Yeah. freaking podcast, I mean, we've covered more than a few films where we were just like, Man. yes, I found a copy of this film. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not going to tell you where. Yeah. You know? yeah, yes, it looks like it's laying beneath several layers of gauze, but we were able to see it we're as long as we can it. see it. Yeah. So. Uh, he says, assignment terror. Nearly wet myself imagining a board meeting on Umo. <laughs> Once again, something I totally forgot got mentioned. But yes. yes. <laughs> board meeting on Umo. <laughs> he says, uh, Al Adamson's non-opus, Dracula versus Frankenstein. My 14-year-old loves this film. He says, oh, God, really? Yeah. He's, it's, I, I, I understand. I loved it as a kid, too. He said, it, it is the key to helping me find Nashie all those years ago. I had seen the VHS for sale at Kmart, asked my mom to get it for me, $9.99 price. Having just got another Frankenstein movie the week before, which was the BBC Frankenstein with Robert Powell, on the same rack, I was told I could get it the next week if I was good. Of course, it was not there. See, I thought he was going to say, of course, I was not good. (laughs) But he says, of course, it was not there. I searched every store that had videos that day forward, but to no avail. The closest I could do was read a description in Leonard Maltin's video guide. Next to it was Dracula vs. Frankenstein, see Assignment, see Assignment Terror. Yeah. The brief note on that title was something among, along the lines of Aliens Resurrect Frankenstein, Dracula, a Mummy, and a Werewolf to Take Over the World. I then had to seek that film, too. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah, how could you not? <laughs> uh, by the way, the, the news of I Know Your Mind is Reeling, just as I am, over the uh, the the amazing box set on Al Adamson that is coming out. That's oh, I know just the Severin most insane. Is, oh, my God. I love the... My favorite 30, thing, of, thirty films. Oh my god, at least, yeah. And the, the, my favorite thing about it is that it's called the masterpiece collection. I just think that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there were no dick quotes around. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. A, I, well, their tongue has to be a little bit in cheek on that. Well, like, here's, that's, here's a question. Something he yeah. brings up. He says he saw that Al Adamson Frankenstein versus Dracula film when he was mm-hmm. fourteen. Mm-hmm. So, and he has some affection for it. And I'm wondering now because Derek has so much affection for the film. Is is my hatred of the film, and mm-hmm other people's love for it yeah. because they saw it at yeah. a young age yeah. and I did not I did not see it at a young age I saw it in my 20s yeah. so my right. first encounter with it is mm. the point where I'm going oh my god oh, yeah. instead of just soaking something up yeah because I don't remember the exact age but I guarantee you I was either in my early teens or could have been pre-teens you know when, it, when I saw it on TV and, and you know my guess is you know we talked about eventually doing a show on it my guess is that yeah, everything that you would point to and say that's 
terrible, atrocious, we would we would point to it and say, that's terrible, atrocious, and I love it. You know, and all that kind of thing. So and, and none I, of us are saying yeah. it's a good film. But yes, there is I, an affection. I completely understand that yeah. because God knows I have enough films yeah. like that yeah, right. in, in, yeah. in, my, in my collection, <laughs> yeah. my vast collection of stuff. I understand yeah. knowing that it's terrible and still having a yeah. lot of affection and love yeah. for something. But at the same time, it's like that. That's one. I'm, will, I, I'm willing to watch it again, but understand it's <laughs> it's the same. I have the same reaction as someone saying, "We've got to pull that tooth, Mr. Barnett." Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, ah. Well, see another one on that. That said, is that that's another pleasure of mine like that. That's just a, a terrible film. Is that Blood of Dracula's Castle? You know, because it's just so. <laughs> that's another Al Adamson one that I just love that film, even though it's so so bad. But but because it's just so bizarre. But. Um, but, oh, uh, but back to the yeah. So Don is going back. Uh, he says uh, talking about the assignment. Terry says the presentation on the Blu-ray is a revelation. Not yeah. to sound like a broken record, the lack of video murkiness really shows the scope that was lensed and the potential for what the original film was to be. Michael Rennie's acting really comes through, uh, showing it really comes through, showing a new level to his character. Slight facial elements show here, shown here that couldn't be seen before, which is very important for the becoming of emotions of these non-emoting aliens. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah, he's have, right. Yeah, he's right. Um, he says, uh, "Curse of the Devil," my second Nashi film, is on Blu-ray from Germany, and he, he actually provided a link to that he said it's gorgeous and recommended. So, so apparently, yeah, there's the yeah, German I, Blu-ray. I, I, I'm, I'm aware. I'm aware of that Blu-ray. I'm just I'm not willing to spring for the uh, for Uns- that for that for that price because mm. I still hold out hope that we're going to get yeah. those last few Daninskys on Blu-ray over here eventually. Same here. He says, ordering the VHS right after seeing Assignment Terror, the gothic and tragic atmosphere in this solidified. My love for Nashi. It was like he understood me in my dreams. Plus, with the line, I came here a virgin, I'm not leaving that way. <laughs> How could you not fall in love with this? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just now starting the segment on Curse of the Devil, but wanted to send this out and can follow up when finishing the show. So far, I've greatly enjoyed hearing other fans' voices sharing their love or take on these films. Feels like family I have not met. Finally, no matter what name it is under, Crimson will always suck. <laughs> Can't wait to listen to the rest, Don. Thank you, Don. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I did. By the way, folks, for those keeping score at home, uh, there was a, a sale that prompted me to go ahead and spend money on a Blu-ray of Crimson. Uh-huh. Uh, it is still wrapped in its plastic because there, its mm-hmm. its horrors yeah. are still contained yes. within something yes. that I have not been able been been able to puncture. But now you will be able to. Now you will actually get to see all the uncut stuff, you know, and I and, suppose, uh, and uh, yeah. which is which is which you know is is just amazing. Especially there's one sex segment segment in there that may be the most. Well, I think you're talking about stuff that was actually on the blue, the, the old DVD as well. If it's if it's the nude sequences, mm-hmm. or is there or is there even more? You're talking about the Blu-ray that came out. No, no, uh, I'm Blu-ray. talking about the DVD of Crimson that came out a long, long. Back. Oh, so you got the DVD? You didn't yeah, get the years Blu-ray? Ago, yeah, but yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The Blu-ray, you know, had had nudity that was definitely not on version. But not in the before. not in the version of the film. But they're in the extra, right? Uh, no, they're in the film. They put oh, them really? In, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. They added, oh, mm-hmm. okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. That might almost make the film worth seeing again. Mm-hmm. That and I just keep remembering, you know, Victor Israel's, and yeah, yeah. I, I keep trying to, you know, <laughs> you know, perk up my enthusiasm for rewatching that movie because I've stayed away from it now for nine years. Yeah, yeah. Because we covered it in episode five, mm. and that's the last time I saw that movie. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now I know we did a follow up episode on it because you ended up you you welsh out on rewatching it. I had to, I rewatched it. And you did. Yeah. It, once so. the Blu-ray came out, I couldn't bring myself to yeah. watch it again. <laughs> Oh, I really could. Oh, God. I've stayed away from it. You've seen it more recently than I. And, yeah. and, and that, it's, it's that is bad. your curse. <laughs> it is my curse. All right. All right next uh, next email. Uh, ooh, let's see. This one's from Glenn. Uh, Glenn McCullough. 
I will, uh, let's see, this, this, this is pretty long. I love his subject line. Oh, hi, Mark, of the Wolfman. <laughs> Which, of okay. course, come yes. on, you got to know what that reference is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He says, hi, guys. Just listened to the 10th anniversary cast and felt compelled to finally get in touch to thank you for a great show. I discovered the podcast about a year and a half ago, and it's given me a lot of hours of educational infotainment. Edutainment? Question mark. <laughs> as well as introducing me to other podcasts such as The Bloody Pit, Natch, yeah. Monster Kid Radio, Cinema PsyOps, etc. Where do I start? The very first Nashi experience, he says, I'm sorry, my very first Nashi experience was Curse of the Devil when I was about seven years old. Once a week, my dad would drive us to the nearest video shop, this being the mid-80s, and would usually pick a film and then let me pick one. I suppose there mustn't have been anything there that he liked the look of that evening, so he let me pick two, which were The Incredible Melting Man and Curse of the Devil. Ah, uh, yeah. My parents were incredibly lax about what I was allowed to watch. <laughs> Bless them. I was already fascinated by werewolves by that point, and I think I'd seen An American Werewolf in London at least five times, so it seemed like a good choice. Little was I to know what wonders I would unfo- it would unfold. I think a couple of weeks later I was allowed to pick two again, which were The Keep and mm. Werewolf Shadow. Wow. And by that point, I was hooked. That one's still my favorite. Savage Werewolf mm. plus... Ethereal vampire chicks equal mm-hmm. awesomeness. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yes. By the way, we could talk a lot about the keep as well. No, yeah, definitely. He says, I've seen all the Daninsky movies, bar like uh, Lycanthropus, uh, which, which seems irritatingly hard to track down for some reason. If you look in the correct places online, sir, mm-hmm. the film will be yours. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, and a lot of his other stuff, quite a few of which, a lot of his other stuff, uh, quite a few of which probably would never have crossed my radar without you guys flagging it up. My special antenna has been employed quite vigorously. <laughs> you know, use, yeah. the, use it for like tropas. Yeah. And uh, not just when, <laughs> he says, my special antenna has been employed quite vigorously and not just when Julia Sally or <laughs> Maria Percy <laughs> are on the screen. <laughs> yeah. What kind of geeky fan doesn't like lists? So, apropos of no one asking, here's my list as of right now. Nashy top ten. Oh, cool. Yeah, hang on here. Here we go. Here we go. The list. I I feel we need a drum roll, but we don't have a drum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I'm going to try. Number one, Mm -hmm. Werewolf Shadow. Mm. Number two, Horror Rises from the Tomb. Mm. Number three, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. Good choice. Yes. Number four, The Werewolf and the Yeti. Number five, Night of the Werewolf. Number six, The People Who Own the Dark. Mm, good choice. Good choice. Number seven, Mark of the Wolfman. Number eight, The Mummy's Revenge. Mummy's Rock, whatever Troy says. <laughs> and that's what he said, not me. <laughs> oh, those are well, his. Okay. That is what Glenn said. Uh, okay, you're disqualified now. For uh, that. <laughs> number nine, The Hunchback of the Morgue. And number ten, Count Dracula's Great Love, which I know deep down is rubbish, but I can't help liking it. Well, now there's, I'm, a, there's a lot to love in that movie. Yes, there is. There is. Now I'm really now great list, great choices. I'm, yeah, yeah, I yeah. am surprised that Hunchback of the Morgue is that far down his list. Now, but uh, but uh, it it, I mean, I can't list. say that the ones above it are, are are not good choices. But yeah, I would, de- I would I, but that I would I would definitely move move Hunchback up uh, above some of those. But yeah, good list there. Yeah, yeah, good list. He says I do need to get hold of Panic Beats. Yes, you do. Oh yeah, and the Frenchman's Garden. Yes, yes, you do. You do. Uh, he says, they both sound great. Anyway, I don't want to waffle on and keep wasting your time, so I'll just say please keep on coming. 
keep on keeping on. Here's to another decade of La Vida España. Yours, Glenn McCullough. Horrid post-Brexit Britain. <laughs> cool. So, awesome. So, sorry about the, the post-Brexit Britain part. Ah, well, you know. And now the coronavirus is not making things any <laughs> no, easier. No, it isn't. It isn't. But I would ask him, him the simple question. Nowhere on his list is a film that I would definitely have on my top ten Nashies, which is El Caminante. Well, yeah, it, so it makes you wonder, has he seen it? Yeah, or, or, yeah. yeah. So, Glenn, yeah. just uh, write us back and let us know if you've seen El Caminante, a.k.a. Uh, the Devil Incarnate. Uh, mm-hmm. Mondo Macabro, of course, recent on, released on Blu-ray under that title. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that movie because that's definitely in my top five Nashie films. That's yeah. just, a, it's just a great film. Yep. All right. Cool. Next. Yes, now we have one from Michael Mitchell. He says, hi, Rod and Troy. I finally got a chance to listen to the 10th anniversary show, and it did not disappoint. It was great to hear a few new takes on some classic Nashy films. I've been holding off on listening to it as I had a road trip to Portland or plan, or excuse me. I had been holding off on listening to it as I had a road trip to Portland, Oregon planned, and the four-hour drive was the perfect match for the episode's epic running time. I guess so. Yeah, well, see, there was a method to our madness. We did plan that. <laughs> Anyone of you out there had four-hour drives, that show was for you. <laughs> he says, by the way, I dig the long-running episodes. Okay, yeah, because we okay, were because we forever question that, so it's good to hear that, that, that people don't mind that. He said, y'all made for excellent traveling companions, and we, we didn't even beg you to stop too many times yeah, for a pee it, break. It, yeah. yeah, believe me, you didn't have to mm-hmm. smell our breath. That's so. right. Says, anyhow, I was totally surprised when I heard my name mentioned during the first segment of the show. Last December, while listening to the Bloody Pit Holiday Horror episode, I decided to send some money your way as a way to thank you for all the info, entertainment, and hard work you put into producing your podcast. I've been listening since 2015, and I can tell you it's been awesome to have you and your guests sharing your expertise and enthusiasm for all things Nashy and horror month in and month out. In fact, I first found the show during my last year of university, and the back catalog was one of the few things that kept me entertained and sane during those final grueling days before graduation. Uh, Awesome. Well, we're glad to contribute to higher education. We always feel like we do. (laughs) He says, as someone who has been digging for Nashi films and info since the gray market days of the early 90s, it's been amazing to have your show fill the lull between the flood of early DVD releases to the new renaissance of Blu-ray editions. Seeing y'all go from the early days of the podcast to Blu-ray commentary gurus has been a really fun ride. My hope was that the contribution I made would be a small show of appreciation for everything you and Troy put into the show. It was nice to hear that it helped out during those December doldrums that can grind on many of us during the holidays. Yes, it did, and we are eternally grateful for that. Thank you. Anyways, thanks again for all y'all do and for sharing your love of Spanish horror and genre films in general. I'm always in awe of your knowledge and enthusiasm for crazy, mind-expanding, and most of all, fun cinema. Thanks again, Michael Mitchell. Well, thank you, Michael. That's awesome. And, and we do again, appreciate that you. contribution yeah. that you made to our to our Nashi cast. Uh, really appreciate that. And I would like to take this opportunity again. I should have done it at the top mm-hmm. of the show to say that we got another uh, little contribution from uh, another listener. Holly sent us another uh-huh. contribution of a few dollars. Oh, uh, fantastic. We added onto the pile to help pay for the yeah. hosting for these for these podcasts. And we just once again, Holly, thank you yes, very thank much. You very much. Uh, we don't ever expect these kinds of things, but it is an amazing mm. it is an amazing moment when I get that notification of donation, and I'm mm. just really really stunned that people do enjoy what we're doing enough to uh, yeah. throw some money our way. Yep. We're not just an extra on a Blu-ray that you were <laughs> going to buy anyway. You had to seek us out. You did. So uh, uh, let's see. I got one more here. 
Let's see. Oh, this is a follow-up from uh, Michael. Michael Dodd. We we read his uh, email at the end of last, last show. show. Yeah. Uh, he had another follow-up where he and that one he was uh, giving us some suggestions for some uh, Beyond Nashy episodes. Right. If I remember correctly, he uh, named off a few uh, possible Beyond Nashy episodes, he and he's got that. a couple more. He says, "Hey guys." Here are a few more suggestions for future Beyond Nash episodes. He says, uh, from 1963, the Blanchville Monster, a.k.a. Horror. Yeah, I've heard, heard of that one before. I never got to see it. But Helga Lene, Gerard yeah. Tichy. An early one that's pretty good. Helga would make it worthwhile anyway. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'm not positive that I've ever seen this film. I think it may have slipped by me. Yeah, um, I, I've seen that title pop up from time to yeah. time, but I don't think I ever realized that it had, you know, had Helga Lene in it. And, you and know, of course, Gerard Tichy from, right, exactly. uh, from Inquisition. He's, yeah. so, he's so good in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Definitely, that's one interesting. We'll have, definitely one we'll have to check out. 1963. I wonder what uh, what other titles it might have been mm-hmm. under. I guess primarily just the Blanchville yeah. Horror. I think, yeah. I think this one may have slipped under my radar. Yeah. I think I because... Helga Lene is also in Nightmare Castle. Yeah, I think I may have got confused with. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so yeah, okay, okay. Um, Blanchfield, you know, let's bump that one up. Yeah, that's one good chance. We'll we'll, we'll have to watch watch that one soon here. Yeah, good suggestion there, Michael. Anyway, he also says uh, Crypt of the Living Dead from 1973, aka Young Hannah, Queen of the Vampires, Mm -hmm. which I definitely have seen because Mm -hmm. it's got. Patty Shepard mm-hmm. and uh, Andrew Prime, Matt. Da- I mean, I'm sorry, Mark Damon. Mm-hmm. Good film. I like that movie. He says uh, some heavy hitters in this uh, for fans of Eurohora. The lead actress uh, Gimpera, uh, Gimpera is uh, beautiful as Hannah, and Patty Shepard always delivers. It's mm-hmm. a fave. That's a good, that's a good little film. Yeah. That's one also known under at least three or four different titles. Mm-hmm. I think I saw it primarily under Hannah, Queen of the Vampires, recently. I think it came yeah. out on, on I a think DVD it did, yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. Oh, and he says, I just saw this one out a few years ago. Uh, the Witch's Mountain from 1973 with uh, Victor Israel and uh, Patty mm-hmm. Shepard. I've heard of that one. We want to watch He that. says it's a little slow. It is a slow burn. He says yeah. it's a little slow, but worth it for Patty and Vic. I think it's pretty good. pretty good film. The problem is the mm-hmm. best looking print that I can find is still crappy looking. Oh, yeah. And I'm really holding out hope that eventually somebody is able to get their hands on a much better looking print and clean it up and remaster mm-hmm. it. Because The Witch's Mountain from 1973, it really is a good movie. It's just one that... Mm-hmm. The, the, there's there are night scenes that it's difficult to really get a, a to get a look at what's going on okay. and that's a bit frustrating it's another one of those that are kind of lost in that yeah. in between world where we still don't have a good version mm-hmm. of it yeah at least that I'm aware of right but uh, yeah which is which is mountain is one that I got I gotta tell you uh Michael that one's been on my radar mm-hmm. and one yeah. that I've wanted to cover for a while mm-hmm. but I I keep hoping I keep yeah. holding on hope that somebody will put out a good release of it. And it's just not happened yet. Um, it it turns up on a lot of those fifty movie packs and cheap, you know, cheap. Oh yeah, but you know, uh, it's always going to be like, like that. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like Murder Mansion in that way. I know that's another one. I was like, man, I'm dying for a good print of that to pop oh, up someday. God, I know. I wish somebody would yeah. find a way to make a good, a good, a good release of that. A good release of Witch's Mountain. And, yeah, kind of frustrating, I have to say. Mm-hmm. But no, no, those are three good choices, Michael. Uh, thank you very much for for even more. Like I say, at least one of those has really been on my radar yeah. for this for doing a, an episode on. But I, I want there to be a better looking copy out there because I want to be able to see yeah. more of it myself. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of freaking frustrating, <laughs> but good choices all. Yeah, and that brings us to the end of, yes. of the emails. It took a while, and I yeah. I, I, I knew it would, <laughs> but we won't let it back up quite that badly yeah. anymore. I promise you. Um, 
Once again, if you want to write in, the email address is nashicast at gmail.com. We're glad to hear from you, and, and uh, usually we, we, we will reply to you directly and then forget and not read it out on the show for that. <laughs> Hopefully we can, we can be better about yeah. that in the future and actually do both reply and mm-hmm. read them out on the show. But we want to thank everybody who has written in and uh, hope that you will do as well. If you've got some ideas or some uh, comments mm-hmm. about either uh, the films we've covered, mm-hmm. uh, any of the commentary tracks we've done, any ideas for future projects, please let us know. We're glad to know what people who are actually paying attention to us think about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So um, we want to keep you up to date on what we're doing next. First of all, uh, we're going to do another Beyond Nashy mm-hmm. episode for the next uh, for the next show in this mm-hmm. feed. Mm-hmm. So we'll be doing a Beyond Nashy next time. I've lost track of whatever the number of the show will be, but it doesn't yeah. matter yeah. because we're going a little outside the realms mm-hmm. of weirdness. I think yeah. you may remember last yeah. last episode we discovered that there's a a, 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 a film out there shot in Europe. That has uh, Patty Shepard as a gunfighter. Yeah, yeah, and that was all we needed to know. Uh, yeah, that, we're gonna we're gonna watch that. People. We are gonna watch. <laughs> it's that. called the man. It's called the man called Noon mm-hmm. from uh, 1973. Yep. Stephen Boyd and Richard Crenna are the stars, but Patty Shepard mm-hmm. in all black as mm-hmm. a female mm-hmm. gunfighter. Yeah. That's why we came mm-hmm. to the door. That's right. So next month, is it next month? It would be, I've I lost believe, track. I believe, we'll be, I believe we're doing it next month. We are doing it next oh, month. Oh, we are yes, doing it next right. month. Yes, so, next yes, month. next month, Troy and I are going to uh, discuss... If there is a next month, we will do it. <laughs> yeah, if, if if April allows this to happen, yeah. uh, who know, Who the hell knows? We, yeah. uh, you know, I may have to I may have to shut this whole thing down because... No, I'm not going to shut this thing down. I'm going to keep podcasting because even if we're stuck in the house... Even if we're matter. under armed guard, we can still Skype. <laughs> we can, so, we can still yeah. Skype and do whatever yeah. we have to do. Yeah. So... Uh, next month, here on the NashyCast, the Beyond Nashy episode will be The Man Called Noon. Please play along with us. That film is actually findable out there. It's not uh, It's not an impossible film to locate. And uh, I, I, I actually, as much as I can't wait to see Patty Shepard, I also can't wait to talk kind of uh, a little in-depth about my experience with Richard Crenna over mm-hmm. the years. Mm-hmm. Because that man has had a career. Yes, he has. Oh, my yes, God, did Richard Crenna have a career. Ah. <sighs> Short short form. I used to think he was a TV actor, and then I learned that he's been an actor in almost every field. So mm-hmm. it's been kind of wild. So next month for that, and then the month after that, that would be May. Uh, yep. We're going to go back to the Bloody Pit. Troy and I will finally be getting back to. Uh, well, it's not finally. We just did the Wolfman after yeah. all. <laughs> but we'll be getting back to the '40s Universal horror films over there and covering the Mad Doctor of Market Street. Correct. Which means uh, we get to talk about Lionel Atwell. Pinky. Again. Back on the show. I know. It's always good. <laughs> Pinky. I love it. I love it. Okay. So uh, <laughs> that's what Troy and I will be doing here and over on the Bloody Pit for the next two months. Uh, there will be more episodes sprinkled into the Bloody Pit here and there. I've got uh, a few things outstanding, including another show with the uh, Mighty Mark Maddox coming up pretty soon. Madman Maddox. <laughs> Madman Maddox. <laughs> just a, he's, That's his pro wrestling name. Well, yeah, with Madman Maddox, uh, instead of the Road Warrior, what would he be? The Ink Warrior? The Survivor of the yeah. of the Paint Wastelands? I don't know. <laughs> There's different things coming up over on the Bloody Pit. And uh, so uh, keep, keep tuned in for that, and we will hopefully keep you at least mildly entertained. Mm. Thank you once again for listening. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon. And stay healthy.
statue She lost her mind, but that's not all 